Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of a new series that I'm calling Deep Text. Now, back in the day, like think of like the 1970s, DJs would put on vinyl records on the radio and they would play what they called deep tracks. And a deep track is something that most people, they weren't singles, and so they weren't something that most people would hear often. And they would play these rare tracks and then they might talk about it a little bit. Well, my goal is in deep text is to go through scripture. I, I want to be careful about calling it books of the Bible, but let's call them sacred text for the moment. I want to go through sacred texts that most people have either never read or maybe even never heard about before. I'm talking about some really rare ones. And the great thing about this is that as I talk about it, and I'm here tonight with James and Rob, and they're here to help uh, read and talk about this as well. It, I'm giving everybody, this is up to you guys to decide whether this is scripture or not. Now, there might be some books that I read wrong. I'll straight out say, I believe this is scripture. Tonight's read, which is the Gospel of Gamaliel, I'm not sold on. I don't know if it is or isn't. And this is up for you guys to decide. And one of the great things about this series, as I as I as we go through the weeks and we read more and more of these books, is that I want to give you guys permission to read them. A lot of these books we're going to go through are really taboo books, and like you, you will you will hear people say, "Do not read those books. Don't go near them." But then when you actually read them, they're not that bad. They're not the boogeyman. They're not going to lead you astray like people claim they are. And um, and I hope at the end of this, whether whatever you decide, that we will all be a little bit wiser and more knowledgeable about um, some of these uh, scriptures. Now, keep in mind, when it comes to scripture, if, if I were to ask anybody what they thought scripture was, most people would say they might use the word canon. Probably more so they would say something like it has to be spirit-breathed or, you know, inspired. And... That that may be so. Some of these books, it's hard for me to to just claim whether it was spirit breathed or not. They're certainly not canon. Everything we're going to read is not in canon. They they were not put there by Rome. And I need to emphasize that there is not a prophecy in canon that there would ever be a canon. Something to think about. Most people don't think about that. That being said, for me, if if a book were to tell us to be disobedient to Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living to his Torah, that would immediately be not just a red flag, but that would be cause for me to say, okay, this book is not, uh, this is not scripture. It, it is false scripture. Now, hopefully we're not going to see any of that in the books we're going to go through, uh, including the gospel of Gamaliel. We'll have to see. So how are you guys doing tonight, Rob and James? Did you guys have a good Passover? Yes, very well. And enjoyable. I have a slight uh cold but uh good getting through it pretty pretty good so but other than that i'm doing well so long. same story here you'll notice that my voice sounds like a, a stepped on dog i i have something going on as well as rob but i i did inhale a bunch of drywall dust last week so i think that was a contributing factor passover was awesome you should have had more of a pause in there when he said, I inhaled a lot of, and just given a pause, and then said drywall. <laughs> so, anyways, I dropped in here in the general voice chat, the Gospel of Gamaliel, Lament of the Virgin, which is what we'll be going through tonight. There's two ways you can read this. 
One is that I took the, took the time to uh, take a really sloppy PDF that was just all the words ran together. It took me a while to edit this into paragraphs and then also do hopefully a clean sweep on on some proper words. You know, I, I don't like to say God because God is a Babylonian deity um, and of finances, but also an androgynous uh, Elohim. So I put in here Elohim, I put in here Yahusha, things like that, Israel uh, or Yasharel and so on and so forth. That being said, you guys can either read from the PDF on the website or the website itself. And starting out, I'm going to drop in here. I wish I had this ready, and I don't. I'm going to be taking you guys through this Wikipedia article. So, Josh, as you record this, if you wouldn't mind just pulling up the, the Wikipedia article uh, for the video, and then we can go through this together. And this gives us a little bit of information on who Gamaliel is and potentially this book we're about to read. Gamaliel the Elder, also spelled Gamaliel, was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin in the early 1st century CE. He was son of Simeon ben Hillel and grandson of the great Jewish teacher Hillel the Elder. Gamaliel is thought to have died in 52, the year 52. Uh, he fathered Simeon ben Gamaliel, who was named for Gamaliel's father, and a daughter who married a priest named Simon ben Nathaniel. In the Christian tradition, Gamaliel is recognized as a Pharisee doctor of Jewish law. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, speaks of Gamaliel as a man held in great esteem by all Jews and as the Jewish law teacher of Paul the, the Apostle, or I call him Shaul. Moving on down, let's see. I'm going to skip the part on the Jewish tradition. I'm going to go down here to Christian tradition. And, of course, it repeats again, the Acts of the Apostles introduces Gamaliel as a Pharisee and celebrated doctor of the Mosaic Law in Acts chapter 5. I also, I wish I would have looked this up before we started, but I, I feel like Gamaliel is also in the Nazarene Acts of the Apostles, and he's, uh, he's written about very favorably there. In the larger context, Kepha and the other apostles are described as being persecuted prosecuted before the Sanhedrin for continuing to preach the gospel despite the Jewish authorities having previously prohibited it. The passage describes Gamaliel as presenting an argument against killing the apostles, reminding them about the previous revolts of uh, Theodos and Judas of Galilee, which had collapsed quickly after the deaths of those individuals. Gamaliel's advice was accepted after his concluding argument. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But it be of Elohim, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against Elohim. And again, the context of this is what he's saying is, look at these two other guys. They were put to death. They had a huge following. And uh, their disciples all kind of fell away and went back to the, their work because they were dead and nothing came of it. So if Yahusha, who you put down to death, if there be nothing of it and their claims are in error, then this will all go away. The, and the same thing happened. There were other guys, other messiahs, as you guys know, that came up in the following decades. We don't know anything about them because they had a huge movement. They all fell away. 
The book of Acts later goes on to describe Shaul, the apostle, recounting that although born in Tarsus, he was brought up in Yerushalayim at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, Acts 22.3. No details are given about which teachings Paul or Shaul adopted from Gamaliel, as it is assumed that as a Pharisee, Shaul was already recognized in the community at that time as a devout Jew. Also, how much Gamaliel influenced aspects of Christianity is unmentioned. However, there is no other record of Gamaliel ever having taught in public. But the Talmud does describe Gamaliel as teaching a student who displayed impudence in learning, quote unquote, which a few scholars identify as a possible reference to Shaul. That's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. See, we're learning something new every day. The relationship of Shaul the Apostle and Judaism continues to be the subject of scholarly debate. Okay, enough of that. Now let's go down right here. It says, the alleged Gospel of Gamaliel, which we're going to be reading tonight. The Gospel of Gamaliel is a uh, hypothetical, um, hypothetical excuse me, book speculated to exist by some scholars. Now they, they start talking a lot about these scholars here, and I, I want everyone to know I put no emphasis on scholars. I put as much emphasis on scholars as I do the CDC. All right. These people are, they pay forty dollars to $100,000, however much, for a degree so that they can then inform our world with their own personal views. To exist, uh, they say the book is speculated to exist by some scholars, perhaps a part of Pilate Apocrypha. Now, I agree with this. Uh, I have talked many times about what I call edemic literature. There is pilot apocrypha or pilot literature, and there are many books that revolve around pilots to the to a, the degree that I do believe that pilot was a uh, a convert very early on, and I think that that is why it was. I think up until the 1960s or 1970s, uh, scholars were arguing that pilot never existed. And that's really telling. Uh, I think they finally did find a statue of him or something like that, but Rome scrubbed the guy. They scrubbed him out of existence, and I do not believe that Bible writers were inventing a fake governor. They were writing about a real governor, and again, there's a reason why Rome, Rome scrubbed him. He was an embarrassment to their establishment because I believe he became a convert. While no ancient sources directly refer to such a gospel, these two guys, Pauline and Carl, first proposed that such a book existed in 1906. Now, this is interesting because here we have another post-mud flood book. Uh, in the 1800s, we're seeing dozens and dozens of books that have seemingly never existed before in history. They're being discovered. They're being brought up. They're being dug out. You know, they're found in back rooms. Really interesting stuff going on. And, uh, you know, again, then we get to, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls and other big finds, the, the Nag Hammadi text. Anyways, this one was uh, around 1906. Scholars who believe such a book once existed have reconstructed it from a homely, the Laments of Mary, which we're going to read tonight, by a bishop named uh, uh, Syracus, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, they believe uh, the Laments of Mary extensively quotes the Gospel of Gamaliel. The lament includes a section that leads with I, Gamaliel, which caused the speculation that these sections were actually quoting an existing gospel. Other scholars believe that such inf um, inference that the author was plagiarizing a lost gospel is unwarranted, 
And these sections are simply written by uh, this guy, this Bishop Syracus, from the perspective of Gamaliel. That they, this is what they call the, the hostile view. The hostile view, uh, derisively der, calls it an imaginary work. Okay, so what they're basically saying is that, uh, you know, scholars are divided. Most scholars are going to go and say that this is fan fiction. Like, Enoch is fan fiction, right? Or, you know, you just go down the list. It's all fan fiction. A lot of scholars will say that Moses, the Torah, is fan fiction, that, you know, he never wrote that as well. So you can you can just kind of follow those, those uh, dominoes. And, you know, I point out again, I put very little um, uh, emphasis on scholarly work. I, I fell for it what, at one time, you know, I really got into like Hellenization. I believe that whole thing about how Plato brought it out and then everyone was you know, into Hellenization and all the, it's, it's basically like the, um, it's like geological columns. You know, if, if you find a Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's got to go in this one column. It's got to be in the, what is it? The Tyrassic age or uh, it's not the Jurassic. It's, it's the same thing. It's like, if we find something that looks like what we call Hellenization, it must be from that, you know, from that century, blah, blah, blah. And we see that, you know, we see that with this here. So all right. And then we finally see at the very bottom, veneration, uh, Gamaliel uh, embraced the Christian faith, uh, according to early Christian traditions. And uh, we see him in Clementine literature. I brought that up. So there it is. And um, it, Clementine literature suggested that he maintained secrecy about the conversion and continued to be a member of the Sanhedrin for the purpose of covertly assisting his fellow Christians. And I believe that's a direct quote from uh, the, the Clementine homilies with him and Peter. So. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and start reading this. Now, there is one error at the top of the, the page in the PDF here. It says the Gospel of Gamaliel, and then it says, or the Lament of the Virgin and the Martyrdom of Pilate. This, what we're going to read tonight, is only the first half, the Lament of the Virgin. Now, from what I've read, there's, there's two Gospel of Gamaliels, and there's a reason I'm purposely dividing these up. The Lament of the Virgin is one book. The martyrdom of Pilate is another, and again, there is there's no reason to say that both books are written by the same person or that they're you know that they're a continuation of the other. So maybe they are, maybe they're not. I'm not going to uh, put too much emphasis on that. Let's get reading. Lament of the Virgin. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Ruach Hakodesh, we will write a discourse composed by. There he is. Uh, Sariacus, bishop of the town of Banaza. Quick note, um, I'm not going to do this too much tonight, but just so you guys know, Banaza is like, I think it's like 200 kilometers south of Cairo, and it's along the Nile River, and it was, that town was one of the biggest archaeological sites of the last century. I think specifically the 1800s, going into the 1900s, and they found tons of literature there it was a hop in town in the roman empire as of course was alexandria way to the north but this was another big place and so they found tons of books tons of text and so it seems like this book is being identified as that region i find that interesting all right on the merits of the pure virgin our lady Miriam, and her affectionate weeping on the day of the crucifixion of her adonai when on the day of his holy resurrection, she went to the door of the sepulchre of her son and did not find his body because he had risen up from the dead. May his blessing be with us. Amen. He said, 
the weeping of Yaakov, the head of the patriarchs, has been renewed today. O my beloved, why then should not the virgin Miriam weep over her son, whom she conceived in virginity? Why should not the virgin Miriam weep over the one for whom she suffered the pangs of uh, parturition? Why should not the virgin Miriam weep over the one into whose divine mouth she placed her virgin virginal breast? Why should not the virgin weep over the manger, which is in Bethlehem? Why should not the virgin weep over her beloved son, whom she carried during nine months of gestation? Why should not the virgin weep over the one whom she brought forth and suckled? Quick note here. The, um, I will point this out. It's kind of interesting that the, he, he says that the manger present tense is in Bethlehem. That's kind of interesting. Especially since the manger was uh, accredited as being in uh, Bethlehem for many, many years until in official history, it was finally burned in one of the Crusades. I don't know what to make of that, but the the at the time of the uh, the early church fathers, they talked about the manger as present tense, something you could go and visit and see. If Rachel weeps over children whom she has never embraced. Why should not the virgin weep over the one whom she carried in her arms like all babes? If Rachel weeps over children for whom she did not run from place to place, why should not the virgin weep over her child with whom she ran from country to country? If Rachel weeps over children whose tombs she has not seen, why should not the virgin weep at the door of her only son's sepulcher? The weeping of a venerable old man has been renewed today for a young virgin woman. Yaakov did not see Yosef bound by his brothers, but the virgin saw her son nailed to the wood of the cross. Yaakov did not see Yosef when his brothers threw him while hungry into the depths of the well, so that he might weep over him. But the virgin saw her son hanging on the cross in the middle of two male factors before all the Yahudim. Yaakov did not see Yosef when his brothers stripped him of his clothes, but the virgin saw her son in a naked state in the middle of Jews devoid of understanding, or I should say the Yahudim. Yaakov did not see Yosef being sold to Egyptian merchants for 30 denarii, but the virgin saw her son when Yehuda sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Yaakov wept over a foreign blood and over a robe that was not torn by wild beast, but it is over a divine blood smeared on the rock of the um, cranion that the virgin is weeping, and over the foreign robe which her son was wearing, since they had divided his garments among themselves. The brothers of Yosef wept and repented that they had sold their brother, but the children of Israel did not weep when they sold their Adonai. The sons of Yaakov rejoiced when their brother reigned over Egypt. But the Yahudim did not rejoice when their Adonai rose up from the dead. O pure virgin, your wailing over the tomb of your beloved son is truly sweet, and your voice is melodious in the middle of the angels. When they brought to you the sad news and said, O Miriam, what are you doing sitting while your son is standing before the governor and is being judged and insulted by the high priest of the Yahudim? O Miriam, what are you doing sitting while your son is being stripped in the court of his garment dyed with his blood? 
O daughter of Joachim, what are you doing sitting while your son is carrying alone a cross in the streets of Jerusalem, and no one comes near him? O dove of Hannah, what are you doing sitting while your son is being crucified in the place of the cranion? O seed of David, why have they lifted your son on the cross? O my pure and virgin lady, your railing is truly sweet today in the house of Yochanan, while saying, Oh, how bitter is this messenger who came to me today. He is more bitter than the messenger of death who came to Job and to Yaakov, Yasharel. Oh, how cruel is the intelligencer who came to me today, oh, my child. He is more cruel than the one who announced to Lot the burning of his, of his town. Oh, how painful is the news that came to me today, oh, my child. It is more painful than the news concerning the death of the valiant men of Yasharel. Oh, how cruel is the messenger who brought me this bad news, oh, my child. This child has comforted me for 30 years, and he never furnished me with an occasion to chide him and scold him. What adds bitterness to the news is that the one who brought it to me is Salome. All my sorrow has begun again. Oh, my child, I have never been to a governor, nor have I ever stood before a judge. I have never seen a, rob a robber being killed, nor have I ever gone to the cranion, nor do I know the place of the Golgotha. Oh, my child, I have never stood before a man engaged in litigation so that I might realize the false wisdom that has been applied to your case. Nor have I ever been present in a law court so that I might realize the injustice that has been done to you. Oh, my child, I am inside the house of Yochanan, and you are in the house of the high priest Annas. Oh, my child, this cruel news that concerns you has outweighed the sadness of my, orphan, uh, of my orphanhood. And the painful information relating to you has today deprived me of my joy. The angel announced to me your birth in Nazareth, and I have been announced this cruel news about you in Yerushalayim. Your annunciation occurred to me in the house of Yosef, and this bad news was brought to me in the house of Yochanan. Oh, my beloved, I was rejoicing in my heart and saying constantly, Tomorrow we shall have our Passover, accomplish the ordinance of the feast, and return to our home. The Passover has come to me, O oh my beloved son, with weeping and wailing. My feast has changed into lamentation, and my Passover into grief. The virgin uttered this affectionate wailing in the house of Yochanan when they brought to her the sad news of her son. Then she began to look for one of his holy disciples to walk with her, but she did not find any, because all had fled and forsaken him from fear of the Yahudim. She asked for Kepha to accompany her, and she was informed that from his fear of the high priest, he had denied her son, saying, I do not know him, and that he had gone and hidden himself from him. She asked for Yaakov, the brother of Adonai, and she was informed that he had fled and left him on the mount where he was seized. That's kind of interesting, a little reference there to, to James Yaakov being there uh, with the twelve. She asked for Thomas, and she was informed that he had thrown down his garments and fled. 
She asked for the son of Thomas. Uh, that would be Bartholomew, I believe. And she was informed that he was the first of his brethren to flee. She asked for Philip, and she was informed that when he saw the torches burning, he was terrified and fled. She asked for Yaakov, the brother of Yochanan, and she was informed that he never even looked at him. She asked for Matthew, and she was informed that he was afraid of the Yahudi more than all the others, as they had a special grudge against him from the time he used to collect taxes from them, and he had therefore fled in, in the darkness of the night. In short, she asked for all of them, and she did not find a single one of them except Yochanan, who had accompanied him to the Cranion and the Golgotha. Then the virgin resumed her weeping and wailing because she was not able to find any of the apostles, the disciples of her son, except Yochanan, and said while weeping, Woe is me, O my son, and O my beloved, because your brethren fled and disappeared. O my father Kepha, I was thinking every day that you would not deny your master. You have not been given gold and silver that you denied him so quickly. You have not been presented with a boat and oars. Why then did you why why then did you deny today your master and your Adonai? You have not had the gift of a son or a daughter as the price of your denial. O Kepha, and you have not had the offer of exchanging him for a bro brother or a friend. Why then this spiritless weakness of yours? You did not see a second cross, O Kepha, which you believed might be for you, that you were so terrified that you denied him. He gave you a tongue of iron, O Kepha, and you melted it and spoiled it without fire or a smith. He bestowed grace upon you, O Kepha, more than all men, and you did not bear now a single slap for your master. He bestowed on you, O Kepha, two eyes, the light of which does not fade, and you did not feel ashamed to deny their light. He confided to you, O Kepha, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and you did not suffer a short time for him in the prison of the high priest. He made you, O Kepha, his deputy to all the world, and you did not endure a single temptation for your master. He made you, O Kepha, a father to all the world, and you did not act in a brotherly love for a single short hour towards my son. He imposed his, his divine hand on your head, O Kepha, and you did not agree to have a crown of thorns on your head before you had denied him. Even if you say, Kepha, that my son is not your master but only your friend, it did not behoove you to deny him in this way. If you had to endure, O Kepha, all the tribulations undergone with us by my father Yosef, you should have been dragged to Herod with my son. If you had to bear like him the pains of the journey to the country of Egypt, you might not have been able to endure a single one of them. May the dew of heaven nurture your bones, O my father Yosef, the just man, and may the tree of life nourish your soul because you have endured my tribulations with me and have not denied my son. O Kepha, they have not brought you before the governor, nor have they placed you before the high tribunal that you, that you denied your master so quickly. When the virgin finished her lamentations over the denial of Kepha in the house of Yochanan, she sent for Yochanan, who came and found her weeping. 
Then both Yochanan and the Virgin wept over Adonai Yehushua. Then Yochanan said to the Virgin, O my mother, do not weep over Kepha for his denial of my master, because he has not the same blame attached to him as that which attaches to Yehuda, who betrayed him, um, heard what my master said at the evening meal, and what Kepha said to him, Be it far from you, Adonai, this shall not be unto you, but I will give my life for you. And I heard my Adonai, my master, rebuking him three times, saying to him, Go ye behind me, Satan, you have become an offense to me, for you think not of the things that be of Elohim, but of the things, but of those things that be of men. Now, O oh my lady and my mother, do not weep over my father Kepha, because his denial will be the symbol of repentance to sinners, as he gave to lie to his own words and corroborated the words of his master. Then the virgin gave herself to bitter weeping, because she had not seen her son. And she re reverted again to her painful lamentations in the house of Yochanan and said, I adjure you, O Yochanan, to show me the way to the cranion. I adjure you, O Yochanan, to accompany me to the Golgotha. I have never yet seen a robber being crucified, nor have I stood near a robber when he was being beheaded. I shall forsake my town and my great freedom and shall go barefooted to the place in which my beloved son has been crucified like common robbers, because he is alone and not one of his brethren is standing near him. And there is not here with you any of your friends who would say anything about you. O oh, my child, the sorrow of a mother for her beloved son is something, and the sorrow of a friend for his friend is another thing. The pain of the heart of a mother weeping over her beloved son is something, and the weeping of a friend over her friend is another thing. My sorrow, O oh my child, is today greater than that of all the world. And of all the inhabitants of Yerushalayim, and my weeping is more bitter than that of all who shall gather near me. When Yochanan noticed that she was not able to cease her weeping and wailing, and that he on his part was unable to comfort her, because she was saying, If I do not see him, I cannot be comforted. He said to her, Get up, and I will accompany, accompany you to the cranion so that you may see him. The virgin, therefore, went out of the house of Yochanan and walked in the streets of Yerushalayim. People who saw the virgin walking said to one another, From where is this wailing woman? And the people of the bazaar said, We have never seen this woman buying anything from the bazaar. Some others said, This is a foreign woman, and she walks in the streets as if she did not know it. The people, who, however, who recognize and Yochanan, the disciple of Adonai Yehushua, said, This may perhaps be his mother going to see him on the cross. Some people said, This is the wife of Yosef. And some others said, The news of his conception was brought to her. Finally, some people said, Look at her, how beautiful is her face and her weeping. And yet some others said, We have not seen any another one in this town like her, and her face resembles that of her son. In short, everyone in the market was saying something about her and how noticeable was her appearance in the street of the town. And Sal Salami was walking behind her, while some other women covered her with her veil, but she was not observing anything 
but only listening to the sorrow of her heart. When she reached the Golgotha, she noticed a great throng of people and groups of different tribes and clans looking at her son on the cross. People of various nationalities from all districts had assembled in Jerusalem in that holy month for the uh, immolation of the lamb. I'm going to mess up some of these names here, but Emgazites, Balakites, Moabites, Kabarites, and Ishmaelites. All these were pressing in groups against one another for the great and wonderful sight. Some people were saying they condemn this one today with injustice. And some others were saying they have emptied their wrath on him. Some were saying they were seeking the death of this one for many years. And some others were saying they have killed a brave man today. Some were saying if, if there was justice in this town, they would never have been able to kill this one. And yet, some others were saying, this is the one for whom the emperor sent in order to make him a king over all Judea. And that is why Herod ordered his death. Some people cursed Herod because of him, saying, the one who took his brother's wife while he was still alive and rendered him a poor and wretched man has also killed this one without pity. As to the virgin, she inclined her face towards the earth on account of her weeping and humility, and she was not able to see her son quickly because of her painful weeping and the thronging of the great multitudes of people. She said, therefore, to Yochanan, Where is my beloved son so that I may see him? The pressing of these numerous people against one another does not allow me to see him. And Yochanan said to her, Lift your head towards the western side of these people, and you will see him extended on the cross. And the virgin looked towards all those multitudes of people, and she saw him. She did not cease to wade with Yochanan through the multitudes until she came and stood at his right and looked at him in his sufferings. When Elohim saw his mother, he looked towards Yochanan and said to him, O oh man, this is your mother. And then he said to his mother, O oh mother, this is your son. And Yochanan held the virgin's hand in order to take her to his house. But the virgin, his mother, said, O oh, Yochanan, let me weep over him, as he has no brother and no sister, and do not deprive me of him. O oh, my son, would that I had with you a crown of thorns on my head, and would that I could make it as painful as yours. If the penalty of all the robbers is crucifixion, why have they not stripped you of your garments, uh, Yehuda, since you were a thief and stole from the bag? Oh, Yochanan, look at my wretchedness today in the middle of these multitudes. Look at my lowliness at the pains of my heart. Let me look at his face to my satisfaction. Let me look at his sufferings to my satisfaction as I have never seen him in such a state before, except today. Let me weep over him, because my sufferings are today greater than his sufferings. The lying place of all the paupers is the dung heap. Let me then look at him to my satisfaction, because I am an orphan without father, without mother, and without relatives. This is the wailing indulged in by the virgin while she was at the right hand of her son. She was in a state of confusion owing to the intensity of her pain, and because of the greatness of her sorrow, she did not notice the great multitudes that were present. 
she was only bent on weeping. Now there were present there uh, Joanna, wife of Chusa, Miriam Magdalena, and Salome. And these got a hold of the lady, Mar uh, Miriam, and lifted her up. Her wailing was truly sweet while she was surrounded by pure women who were weeping with her because of the sweetness of her words. Other Jewish women who heard her weeping scoffed at her, saying, Our vengeance has come today on you and on your son, because it is through you that our wombs have become childless from the year in which you brought him forth. The heads of the Jews spoke them uh, then with the soldiers of Herod and hardened their hearts to kill Yahushua. They had informed Herod the, that Pilate, with great number of people, loved Yahushua, and they had added, We fear that in going to crucify him, those people might raise against us and snatch him from our hands on the advice of Pilate. Give us, therefore, order and power to crucify him. And they had given him much money, and he had given them the power required and sent the soldiers to them. This is the reason why Pilate did not go out with him that day. He feared an armed conflict between him and the Yahudim. Indeed, Pilate and his wife loved Yahushua like their own soul. And the, flog, the flogging that he had ordered for him was done in order to satisfy the wicked Yahudim. And so to save him from death. Had he known that they would crucify him, if he were to die with his wife and his sons, he would not have laid hands on him at all. The Yahudim had lied to Pilate, saying, If you only chastise this rebel for us, and if he ceases to help people on the Sabbath day, we will release him. It is under this false pretext that Pilate had ordered him to be flagellated. The above conspiracy took place before the virgin stood at the right side of her son, and Yochanan wished to take her to his house. She then rose weeping and lamenting and returned to town, saying, I leave you in shalom, O my child, you and the cross upon which you have been lifted up. I salute your face full of grace, which they have insulted at and at which they have railed. I salute your nudity, O king, who is in the middle of robbers. I salute your royal garment, O my child, which is in the hands of your enemies. I salute you. O oh, my beloved, with the crown of thorns which is overshadowing you. The virgin was saying all this while she was being taken, weeping to the house of Yochanan. There she did not cease to weep, nor did she give slumber to her eyelids, but she kept weeping and wailing. After Yochanan had placed her in the house, he did not neglect to go to the cranian and witness till the end all the sufferings of his master. When the body had ceased to function, he gave up the ghost. Then all the town shook from the great earthquake that occurred in the earth and the signs that took place in heaven. When the virgin noticed that the earth quaked and that the darkness spread over all the town, she said, This is a sign that my son has died. While she was saying this, lo, Yochanan came weeping, and the virgin said to him, Is it not true that my son died on the cross? And he inclined his head and said, yes, he died. With that, I'm not sure, James, are you still there? Would you like to take over reading? Absolutely, yes. We are on the bottom paragraph of page six. Yep, I'm there. 
How great were the weeping and the lamentations of the virgin at that hour. With intense pains of the heart, she wept and said, Woe is me, O my child, because of this dreadful death which you have incurred. I did not find a governor to inquire into the injustice done to me, nor a judge to gauge the pains of my heart. O governor, if you had judged with justice according to the law, the son of the king would not have been killed while hungry and thirsty. O high priest, if you had judged with justice, Yehuda would have been worthy of crucifixion instead of my son. If you had pondered over your decision, O governor, you would not have crucified my son in his nudity. If you had judged with equity, O high priest, you would not have released a robber from death and killed the prince. If you had judged with equity, O governor, you would not have killed a valiant man while war is looking you in the face. If you had judged with equity, O high priest, you would not have uttered insulting words to your master. I hear that at a time when people are at war, if it happens that they capture the son of the king, they take great care of him and do not kill him, but send him to his father as an honor. Why then, O high priest, when you asked my son the truth and he told it to you, you hated him? You preferred a lie and put your trust on it. You asked for truth. Do you not know then that the one who is standing before you is truthful, nay, truth and life? Truly, O Virgin, O Holy Miriam, you have met with injustice in the town of Yerushalayim more than many of your generation because they attacked the Great One who was in it and delivered him to the judgment of death. After all this, the Messiah was still hanging on the cross, and many confessed, saying, This man who performed all these deeds is the son of Elohim. All the people who believed wept while he was on the cross. Then Pilate summoned the centurion who was sent by Herod in order to crucify Yahushua. And he ushered him into his house and said to him, Have you seen, O my brother, what the Yehudim and Herod did to this just man, and how they killed him with such an injustice that all this happened on the earth? I tell you, O my brother, that all this evil is not by my will, but on the advice of Herod. I wished to release him and save him from death, but when I noticed that this was against the wish of Herod, I delivered him to the Jews for crucifixion, the Yehudim. See now, what ransom shall we give to Elohim for his son whom we have killed? Then the centurion, together with the owner of the spear and Pilate, began to weep bitterly, saying, May his blood be on Herod and on the high priest. Then Pilate summoned the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, before the public and said to them, O oh, haters of bodies and drinkers of blood unjustly shed, see now what happened as a consequence of the death of Yahushua of Nazareth on the cross. May his blood be on you and on your children. And they stuck out their chests and at their faces, saying, May the blood of this erring man be on us and on our children for a thousand generations. And Pilate said, What? Even now, after all the signs that he showed in heaven and earth, you are not awestruck and amazed like all the people? And they said, We are not afraid, because we have fulfilled the law. And Pilate said, O oh, high priest, if you have fulfilled the law, why are your clothes rent? The law says that if a high priest rents his clothes, he falls from office. And he answered, I rent my clothes because he blasphemed against the Most High Elohim and against the law. Pilate said to him, I order you not to enter the temple another time like a high priest, but like a rebel. And if anyone tells me that you have gone to the temple, I will cut off your head. And the high priest said to him, 
which governor among your predecessors has in the preceding time interdicted a high priest and has enjoyed a long term of office? He said this because he was under the jurisdiction of Herod. Pilate said to him, Are not then the signs that have so far occurred sufficient for you as they are for all the people? And the high priest said to Pilate, You are a young shoot in this town, and you do not know the meaning and the portent of these signs. This month is Barmuda, and in it the revolution of the sun and the moon takes place. At this time, the sorcerers give to the moon the color of blood and detract the ray of the sun by their spells. They do it in order to exact work from the husbandmen and to prognosticate concerning the fruits, the crops, the wines, and the oils. This is what the high priest lied and said. Then Pilate rose from his chair and scourged him with a rough whip. He plucked also the hairs of his beard and tormented him, saying, You wish to bring the wrath of Elohim on earth, on the earth, on account of your hatred for Yehushua. Then the centurion and the soldier said, You prefer death to life. After having chastised him on recommendation of Pilate, they sent him to prison on the advice of the centurion, until such time as they would send him to the emperor. After this, Pilate conferred with the centurion and said, Is his body going to hang on the cross? And the centurion said to Pilate, The power is in your hands, O governor. And Pilate said to him, Do you wish that we take him down from the cross and confide him to a reliable man for three days in order that perchance he may rise as he himself raised many people from the dead? When Pilate uttered these words, the heads of the Yehudim shouted suddenly and said, It is against the law to deliver a dead man to anyone. The grave is the resting place of the dead. After this, Yosef, who was from Arimathea, came to Pilate and asked permission to take down the body of Yehusha Messiah from the cross. And Pilate was pleased. He ordered it to be given to him. And the Yehudim walked behind him with the guards. Yosef then took it down from the cross and buried it in conjunction with Nicodemus. The Yehudim, however, had an argument with him because they did not wish to bring down the, his body from the cross, but to leave it on the wood like that of all the other robbers, because Yehusha had made mention of his resurrection. After they had shrouded him well in perfume, myrrh, and new linen wrappings, which had not been used for another man at all, they laid him in a new tomb in which no other body had ever been laid, because it was newly made for Yosef himself, the owner of the garden. They then fastened him well till the third day. When the body of Yehushua was placed in the sepulcher, the Jews went to Pilate and said, You know that it is the Sabbath. And they asked for four witnesses for his tomb, two from the soldiers of Herod and two from the soldiers of the centurion. They confided the tomb to them and ordered them to guard it till the third day. And the centurion remained in Yerushalayim till the third day in order to see the miracle. And he said, If Yehushua rises from the dead, I shall no further need of the power of Herod. After all this, Yohanan went in haste to the virgin and said to her, They have laid my master in a good new tomb and have shrouded him with new wrappings, good perfume, and myrrh of high quality. And the virgin inquired, Who was the one who did this good thing to my beloved son? And he informed her that it was Yosef and Nicodemus, the venerable chiefs. And the virgin did not cease her weeping and wailing and said, If they have placed my beloved son under the tree of life, I shall not be comforted unless I see him. If they have placed the robe of Solomon over the body of my son, I shall not be comforted unless I see his tomb. 
If they have poured the perfume of Ahran over the body of my son, I cannot be comforted unless I see his burial place. If they have laid my son in the graves of the prophets, I shall not be comforted unless I see him. If the grave in which my son is lying is that of Elisha, I shall not be comforted unless I see him. If the place in which they have placed my son is paradise itself, I shall not be comforted unless I see him. May the dew of heaven nurture you, O oh, my father Yosef, and may the firmament nourish you, O oh, Nicodemus, for the little good work you did to my son on the cross. Would that I have been weeping under your cross, O oh, my son, even if I could not find your body, O oh, my beloved. I would have grasped your blood, because although Yaakov did not find the blood of Yosef, he wept over the blood of another. Woe is me, O oh, my beloved son, because I have not seen your body and your blood. If I had found your blood, O oh, my child, I would have purified my garment with it. And if I had found your garment, it would have been as a garment of Yosef to me. The blood over which Yaakov wept was a foreign blood, and that over which I weep is flowing from the side of my son. If they have not broken your bones, O oh, my son, as it is written in their law, so that the malefactors might be delivered from their plan, they have pushed the spearhead into your divine side. No evil deed was left, O oh, my beloved, which they did not do to you before they crucified you, and no injustice was left, O oh, my beloved, which they did not do to you. Woe is me, O oh, my beloved son, my reins are bursting inside of me. I never saw a physician healing people like you, O oh, my beloved son, and in spite of that they struck you. You have been a physician to their diseases, which you cured, and in spite of that they nailed you to the wood of the cross. You have been a physician, O oh my child, to their men born blind, and you gave them their sight. And in spite of that, the unbelieving Yahudim did not feel ashamed to insult you. You have been a physician, O oh my son, and you drove out their demons from them. And in spite of that, they did not honor you, but said, you drive them out by Beelzebub. You have been a physician, O oh my son, and you cured them from hemorrhage. And in spite of that, they did not feel ashamed of you, but they pierced you in your side. O oh, my beloved, with a spearhead, I adjure you, O oh, Yochanan, to come with me to the tomb of my son. I implore you, O oh, Yochanan, to accompany me to my only son so that I may pay a visit to his cross. I know, O oh, Yochanan, that I am putting you to much trouble with the sorrow of my heart, but have patience with me, and you will receive much blessing from my beloved son. The virgin uttered these and similar words in her lamentations and said, Oh, Yochanan, if I do not see his tomb, I shall not be comforted in my sorrow. And Yochanan used to comfort her, saying, Cease your weeping, because they have buried him with perfume, incense, and new wrappings near a garden. The virgin, however, wept, saying, If the ark of Noah were placed... Sorry. If the ark of Noah were the place of the burial of my son, I shall not be comforted unless I see him and weep over him. And Yochanan said to her, How can you go while four soldiers from the soldiers of the governor are lying on the sepulcher? And the virgin remained in this weeping and wailing over her son in the day of his crucifixion, the Sabbath day to the morning of Sunday. As to the soldiers whom the governor had detailed to guard the tomb, the heads of the Yehudim had entered with them into a conspiracy unknown to the governor and the centurion, to the effect that if the erring one were perchance to rise, they should inform them of the fact before the governor. For this, and for their not disclosing this conspiracy to Pilate, they were promised much money and silver. 
the Yehudim held this conspiracy with the soldiers before the latter went to guard the tomb. When, however, Yahushua rose and many signs took place at his resurrection, the soldiers were frightened and terrified and became like dead men. They entered the town early in the morning, and remembering the deceitful words of the Yehudim, they went to them while it was still dark before they went to the governor and apprised them of the fact that Yahushua of Nazareth had risen from the dead as he had predicted. The Yehudim went in haste and related to the high priest the words of the soldiers to the effect that Yahushua had risen from the dead. And they shouted, saying, Woe to the Yehudim and to their lives, because this day has more evil in it for them than the day in which he was crucified. What shall we do if the governor and the centurion hear that he rose from the dead? We shall fall into his hands. But let us see first what really took place. And they went into the tomb while it was still early in the morning, and did not find the body of Yahushua in it. Then they tore their garments, gave silver to the four soldiers apart from his garments, and said, Will he appear to everybody? In short, every one of them, in their confusion, said something. As to the virgin, she did not neglect to go to the tomb early on Sunday morning. Mary and Magdalene had, however, preceded her to the sepulcher, and noticed that the stone had been rolled away from it. The virgin said, this is a sign that occurred in the case of my son, and it perplexes me. Who rolled away this stone from the door of the sepulchre? The virgin looked then in four directions from the tomb, and did not find in it the body of her son. And she sat down, and reverted to her wailing and lamentation, and said, Woe is me, O oh my beloved son! Who is it that carried your body, and added to the sorrow of my heart? I have not been at all to the tomb of my father, nor to that of my mother. When my father died, I was a young girl in the temple. Nor have I ever been to the grave of my father Yosef, who endured so many troubles with you, O oh my son. This day I came to your tomb, O oh my son, in order to inform myself concerning your body. Another sorrow has been added to my sorrow. This day that I came to your tomb, oh my child, I met with a bitter disappointment, as I did not find your body in it, oh my son. On the Golgotha they did not permit me to satisfy my desire for looking at you to my satisfaction, and today they did not allow me to satisfy my desire for looking at your body in the grave to my heart's desire. On the day of your birth in Bethlehem, oh my son, when your star shone, Herod did not glorify you. And on the day of your crucifixion, O oh my son, when the sun suffered eclipse, the Yehudim did not believe in you. On the day I brought you forth in Bethlehem, O oh my son, your angels surrounded you in order to glorify you. And on the day of your resurrection, my beloved son, your brethren forsook you. On the day I brought you forth in Bethlehem, O oh my beloved son, the shepherds came at daybreak and worshipped you. And on the day of your death, Oh, my beloved son, I came to your tomb and did not find your body in it. On the day I brought you forth in Bethlehem, O oh, my son, the Magi came to you with their offerings. And on the day of your crucifixion, O oh, my son, a wicked robber insulted you. The day of your birth in Bethlehem, O oh, my son, the animals praised it. And on the day of your crucifixion, O oh, my beloved, I met with pain and sorrow. On the day of your birth in Bethlehem, Oh, my beloved son, Yosef served you, and on the day of your crucifixion, oh, my beloved son, the same Yosef, my father died. Woe is me, oh, my beloved, there is no sorrow like my sorrow, nor is there any pain like the pain of a mother looking at her son on the wood of the cross. 
Oh, my son, I went to Golgotha and did not see your body on the wood of the cross. And I came to the door of your tomb asking for you, and you did not answer me. Woe is me. Oh, my beloved son, my sorrow is too full today because I did not see your body on the wood so that I might weep over it, and because I did not find it in the tomb so that I might worship it. I adjure the four soldiers who keep watch over your tomb and your body to deliver your body, if perchance they have removed it through bribery. I implore Yosef and weep before Nicodemus to reassure me concerning your body since they took it on their own responsibility from Pilate and laid it in this tomb. I have never seen Yosef, nor do I know Nicodemus, but on account of the intensity of my pain, I let my heart go to them. This is what the virgin said over the tomb of her son. She was perplexed in her soul from the fear of the Yehudim and from the fact that she did not find the body of her son in the tomb. While she was thinking deeply, a sudden light shone, and an exquisite perfume was perceived from the right side of the tomb, as if wafted from an incense tree. The virgin looked towards the direction of the scent and saw the good Elohim standing, clad in a heavenly robe, and his face greatly suffused with joy. And he said to her, O oh woman, what makes you burst into this affectionate wailing at this empty tomb which contains no body? And she replied, It is my sorrow! And this sorrow, oh my Adonai, arises from the fact that I did not find the body of my son, so that I might weep over it and be somewhat comforted. And Yahushua said to her, If you were not satisfied in weeping and wailing throughout all this length of time, had you found the body of your son in the tomb, you would have never ceased your lamentation. And she replied, Oh my Adonai, if I had found it, I would have been somewhat comforted by it. And he said to her, Oh, woman, if you had seen your son dead, you have not. You would have had no comfort in looking at his side, pierced by a spear, at his hands and feet, by the driving of nails in them, and at his body smeared with blood. Now, O oh woman, comfort yourself, because it was more advantageous for you not to have seen him dead, and wept all the more over him. What comfort did you derive when you saw him alive on the cross, and dead with wrappings around him? Truly, O oh woman, you have had much courage in your soul in coming to this place, while it is still dark and while all this great disturbance reigns in the town. The guards went from here and are now conspiring with Yehudim in lying terms concerning your son. Does the tomb in which the body of your son was laid belong to the Yehudim? No, O woman. I know the man called Yosef, and this garden belongs to him. And the virgin said to him, Oh, my Adonai, you know everything that happened to my son and the love which, was, which they showed to him in laying him in this tomb. I could not bear to stay in the house of Yochanan any longer, but I came to inquire after him. Now, oh, my Adonai, since you are the owner of the garden and the beauty of your dresses and the sweet words with which you have answered me testify to this, if there's any pity in your heart for me, show it to me now because I have no other child. Disclose to me his secret and what they did with his body, since I did not find it in his tomb. Have the Yehudim carried it away because of their hatred for the governance concerning it? And also, O oh my Adonai, if it is hidden in your garden and you know who took it there, have pity on me and show me its place so that I may see it. By your life, O oh my brother, I have never seen this place except today. And Yehushua said to her, 
O Miriam, you have wept sufficiently. The living one is the one who is speaking to you. The one who was crucified is now standing near you. The one whom you are seeking is the one who is comforting you. The one whom you are asking for is the one who is clad in this heavenly robe. The one whose tomb you are wishing to see is the one whom smashed the doors of brass. O Miriam, recognize my glory. Lo, I am comforting you with the words of life, but not ashamed, therefore, nor afraid. Look at my face, O my mother, and you will recognize me. It is I who raised Lazarus in Bethany. It is I, Yehushua, who is resurrection and life. It is I, Yehushua, whose blood flowed on the rock in the cranium. It is I, Yehushua, who is comforting you in your sorrow. It is I, Yehushua, over whom you are weeping, who is now comforting you at the beginning of this resurrection. No one took away my body, O oh my mother, but I rose according to the will of my father. You came today to the tomb, my mother, and I took up out of Hades all those who were fettered in it and saved those who had fallen into sin. When the virgin heard this, she received strength and comfort and ceased her weeping and anxiety. She lifted up her eyes from the ground, filled her sight from him, saw him in the grace of his divinity and said, You have truly risen, O my son and my Adonai, you have truly risen. And she bent over him and embraced him. And he said to her, Enough, O my mother, of the joy which I granted you through my resurrection. Look now at the spoliation of Hades, O my mother, and see how glad and joyful its inmates are. I shall present them as an offering to my father before I take them to paradise. And the virgin looked around him and saw the multitudes which he had taken up from Hades, clad in white robes. She was amazed by them. And Yahushua said to her, Go in haste and announce my resurrection from the dead to my brethren. Go in haste, O my mother. Leave this place and do not stand at the right side of my tomb because the company of the Yehudim will come with Pilate to find out what took place and see if I would raise the dead and give sight to the blind and motion to the lame. After Adonai Yehushua said this to his mother, he disappeared from her sight. She then left the tomb with haste and went and told the apostles and the women that Adonai had been risen from the dead. And they also came to see what had happened. The news spread then in all the town that Yehushua of Nazareth rose from the dead as he said, I'm sorry, as he had said, and that he told his mother, I will recede you to Jerusalem, and you will, you will all see me, and I will bless you there. Excuse me. Sorry. As to the high priests and the Yehudim, they went into the morning. They went in the morning to Pilate, the governor, as if they had heard nothing, and said to him, Oh, our Adonai governor, error has increased and scandals have multiplied today at the sepulcher. Summon the soldiers one by one so that they may relate his story to us before any of us go there. And Pilate said to him, I heard that he rose from the dead. I believe what I saw in a vision that Yahushua rose this day from the dead. By the life of the emperor and by the law of Moses, I do not lie when I say that I saw him last night while I was laying in my bed and was grieved at the fact that I had laid hands on him, and thought that perchance he may be the son of Elohim on account of the signs that appeared in heaven when he died on the cross. I saw him standing and shining more than the sun. All the town, except the gathering place of the Yehudim, shone with his light more than the light of the sun. And he said to me, O Pilate, why are you weeping? Because you ordered Yahushua to be flogged. What is written about him has been fulfilled. 
Return to me and I will forgive you. I am Yahushua who died on the cross. I am Yahushua who rose today from the dead. This light which you see today is the glory of my resurrection, which has enlightened all the world with joy. Look well, O Pilate, and see that this sign which shines on the inhabited earth is more luminous than the light of the sun and is to convince you that I rose from the dead. Hasten to my tomb, and you will see the wrappings lying in it guarded by angels. Kiss them and worship them. Fight for my resurrection, and you will witness many miracles today at the sepulchre. The lame shall walk, the blind shall see, and the dead shall rise by my power. O Pilate, you will shine in the light of my resurrection, which Yehudim will deny. When Pilate uttered these words in his house, the Yehudim raised their voices and said, O our Adonai, the emir, it is not necessary to relate all of this to the people. As it is nothing but a dream. The law says, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Instead of three witnesses, lo, there are four who guarded the tomb. If these tell you that he rose, their words are true. And if they do not do so, we shall have nothing to do with these dreams. Then Pilate summoned the four soldiers and said to them, What happened today at the sepulcher? And they divided the curse among themselves and lied and said that he did not rise but was carried away. And Pilate ordered that they should be separated from one another in different places. The first one was ushered in, and Pilate said, Tell me the truth. Who carried away the body of Yeshua? And he answered, Fifa and Yochanan. And the governor ordered him to be removed to a place by himself. Then he summoned the second one and said to him, I know that you do not speak but the truth. Tell me which of the apostles carried away the body of Yehushua from the tomb. And he answered, the eleven apostles came with his disciples and, and carried him away by stealth. And Pilate ordered that this one also be removed to a place by himself. He then summoned the third one and said to him, I value your testimony more than all of the others. Tell me, who carried away the body of Yahushua from the sepulcher? And he answered, Joseph and Nicodemus. Pilate then called forth the fourth man and said to him, You are the head of these soldiers, and I confided them to you. Disclose to me now all what took place, and how they removed the body of Yahushua from the tomb while you were guarding it. And he answered, Oh, our Adonai the Emir, we were asleep, and we do not know who carried it away. When we woke up, we looked for it and found it below the water which is in the garden. And we said that they did this out of fear. Out of fear. Then Pilate said to the Yehudim and to the centurion, Are these words consistent? Are they not sustained by lies? And he ordered that the soldiers should be kept under guard until he had gone himself to the tomb. Then he arose with the high priests and the head of the soldiers and went to the tomb. They found the wrappings lying in the tomb without the body. And Pilate said, O oh, men who hate their own life, if they had taken away the body, would they not have taken the wrappings with it? And the Yehudim answered, See, these wrappings do not belong to him, but to someone else. And Pilate recalled the words of Yehushua to him, that great miracles will take place in the sepulcher. And he hastened to enter into it. He took the wrappings, that is to say, the pieces of linen with which Yehushua was shrouded. He wept over them and embraced them with joy. Then he looked at the centurion, who was standing at the entrance of the tomb, and who was with one eye only, as his other eye had been put out in war. And a considerable time had elapsed without him having seen anything with it. Pilate then conceived the idea 
through the greatness of his faith, that these wrappings will give light to the centurion's eye. And with this thought, he presented the wrappings to him and said, Oh, my brother, do you not perceive the exquisiteness of the odor of these wrappings and see as if they were sprinkled with perfume and incense? And the Yehudim said, Oh, Pilate, you know that Yosef placed on him much perfume and incense and that they shrouded him with myrrh and sweet spices of aloe, and this sweet, comes, this sweet scent comes from them. And Pilate said to them, If they placed perfumes on the wrappings only, why is all this tomb perfumed with the musk and sweet spices of high value and exquisite odor? And they answered, The scent that you are smelling is the odor of the flowers of the gardens wafted by the winds. And Pilate replied to them, You have trodden on the path of perdition for yourselves, have walked in it and fallen in a place from which you will have no deliverance forever. And they said to him, Nothing is due to us. I'm sorry, nothing is due to you from us. And you have no right to come to the tomb of this man. You are the governor of the city and not of this tomb. Lo, the high priests and the heads of the Yehudim are cognizant of the affair. And it does not behoove you to fight the Yehudim for the sake of a dead man. And Pilate said to the centurion, <clears throat> O brother, do you not notice the bitterness of the hatred that the Yehudim have for Adonai Yehushua? We have acted according to their desires and have crucified him. And all the world was on the brink of ruin and destruction on account of their injustice. They want us now to stumble on their sin. And ever that he has not risen from the dead in order that his wrath may come back on us another time and destroy us completely. Pilate uttered these words to the centurion while holding the wrappings with his hands and embracing them. Then he said, I believe that the body which has been wrapped in you rose from the dead. And the centurion also had faith like Pilate, and seizing the wrappings, he embraced them. When they touched his face, he immediately saw with the blind eye as before, as if Yahushua had laid his hand on it, as he had done with the man who was born blind. How great was the spectacle of the multitudes who had also gone to the tomb. They were from all countries. And they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover and seen Yahushua on the cross on the day of his crucifixion. When they had heard that Pilate had gone to the sepulcher to see, whatever, see whether Yahushua had risen, they also came with the expectation that he might rise and appear to them like Lazarus. This is the reason why great multitudes had come to the tomb of Yahushua in order to see him. And they beheld the great miracles and how the centurions saw and were amazed at what Yahushua had done. And Pilate said to the centurion, Oh, my brother, observe the miracles of Yahushua in his tomb, apart from the miracles that took place at his death on the cross. And the centurion tore up his clothes in order the better to show his joy and the favor which he had received. And he said, The power of Yahushua has been made manifest. He is truly Elohim and son of Elohim. And I have believed in him. My faith has increased from the fact that he being Elohim rose from the dead. I shall not serve a king anymore, but solely my Elohim Yahushua. And he threw away his sword and gave up his military career. <clears throat> While the wrappings were twisted around his hands, he ran to this place and that and embraced them. And Pilate was greatly amazed and glorified Elohim. And the Yahudim said to the centurion, you are a stranger, and you do not know the deeds done by Yahushua through Beelzebub.
what he did in his life. He is now doing it his death. And they added, when a sorcerer dies, the genie do other deeds in his grave, and they deceive many people through them. These deeds are indeed those of sorcerers and conjurers. And Pilate said to him, them. We have never heard that sorcerers and conjurers performed such miracles. Since you are keeping lies out of your own mind on the life of Adonai, his wrath will come on you. <clears throat> and they said, We deliver our souls to judgment. May his blood be on us and our children forever and ever. And Pilate said to the centurion, Oh, my brother, do not exchange cheaply the great gift which you have received for the lie of the hatred of the Yehudim. Then Pilate turned to the Yehudim and said to them, where is the dead man who you said was Yahushua? It is perchance he. And the Yehudim preceded Pilate and the centurion to the well which was in the garden. And it was a deep well. And I, Gamaliel, was following with the crowd. They went down to the bottom of the well and found in it the dead man shrouded and laid in a separate place. And the Yehudim shouted, Here is the Nazarene sorcerer who gave us so much trouble. You say that he rose, and he is at the bottom of the well. And Pilate ordered them to draw him up, and summoned Joseph and Nicodemus, and said to them, Are these the wrappings with which you shrouded the body of Yahushua? And they answered, The wrappings which you are holding in your hands are those of Yahushua. As to this corpse, it is that of the robber who was crucified with Yahushua. And the company of the Yehudim threw themselves on Joseph and Nicodemus, wishing to cast them into the depth of the well because they had spoken truth. They would have done it if it were not for the fact that Pilate and his soldiers shielded them. When Pilate noticed their confusion and their cry, he beckoned to them to be quiet. He had full confidence in the words spoken to him by Adonai Yehushua to the effect that dead men would rise from his tomb. He summoned, therefore, the heads of the Yehudim and said to them, we do not believe at all that this is Yahushua of Nazareth. And they replied to him, If you believe it or do not believe it, we believe it. And he said to them, It is right then that we should leave him in his tomb like other dead men. And he summoned Yosef and Nicodemus another time and said to them, Shroud him with these wrappings as before. And the Yehudim shouted, We do not accept Yosef and Nicodemus has no portion with us because his portion is with Yahushua. And Pilate said, I have greater rights. Then they took the wrappings that had belonged to Adonai Yehushua and shrouded the body of that dead man with him. And Pilate and his soldiers lifted it and placed it in the tomb in which Yehushua lay. And he ordered the people to place the stone at the entrance of the tomb as they had done in the case of Yehushua. Then Pilate stretched his hands and prayed at the door of the sepulcher and said thus, I implore you today, O Adonai Yehushua, you are the resurrection and the life, the giver of life, to all and to the dead. I believe that you rose again as you appeared to me. Do not judge me, O my Adonai, because I am doing this. I have not done it from the fear of the Yehudim, nor to test your resurrection. O my Adonai, I have confidence in your words and in the miracles which you have wrought. You are living because you have raised... You are living because you raised many men from the dead. Now, O my Adonai, do not be angry with me because I placed a foreign corpse in the place in which your body lay. I did this to put to shame and confusion those who deny your resurrection. To them belongs shame and confusion forever and ever, and to you are to glory and honor from the mouth of your servant Pilate forever and ever and ever. 
when Pilate recited this prayer, with outstretched hands at the tomb, a voice came from the dead man saying, O oh, my Adonai Pilate, open to me the door of the tomb in order that I may come out. I was the first to open the door of paradise. Lift the stone, O oh, my Adonai Pilate, so that I may come out by the power of my Adonai Yahushua Messiah who rose from the dead. Excuse me, I need a drink of water. <clears throat> And Pilate shouted with jubilation on account of the joy and happiness which filled his heart and his soul to such an extent that the rocks echoed his voice. And he then ordered the people that were standing to lift the stone from the door of the tomb. And immediately the dead man came, walk came walking out and he bowed before Pilate, the governor. As to the Yehudim who were present, they were seized with panic, shame, and confusion and ran away wailing secretly from their fear of the governor. <clears throat> And Pilate ordered all the soldiers to pursue the Yehudim and strike them with the swords which they were holding. And they wounded many of them. Then Pilate turned to the dead man and said to him, Oh, my son, who raised you in this short time? It is only in case Yahushua was with you that he would have been able to raise you so quickly. And the dead man said to him, Did you not see the great light that shone? Adonai Yahushua raised me while you were praying and spoke to me, saying, Tell my beloved Pilate to fight for my resurrection, because I have decided to appoint him his portion in paradise, as I appointed to you. It is imperative that they should condemn him as they have condemned me before they take off his head. And Pilate said to him, From where are you, and who threw you in this well? And the robber replied, saying, I am the robber who was crucified at his right. I have been deemed worthy of all favors and gifts before my Adonai Yahushua Messiah because of the right, I'm sorry, because of the few comforting words that I uttered while he was on the wood of the cross. I was the first one to rise from the tomb of Yahushua, O oh, my Adonai Pilate, and as you opened the door for me of his sepulcher, so he opened to me the door of paradise. I recognized his, this high perfume as it is from the tree of life which my soul is enjoying. At that moment, I, Gamaliel, followed the crowd and my fathers, Joseph and Nicodemus, because fear did not allow the apostles to come to the sepulcher and witness what had happened to him. They were hiding in every place from fear of the Yehudim. I, Gamaliel, walked with the crowds and witnessed all what happened in the tomb of my Adonai Yahushua and the great fight that Pilate undertook against the high priests, who returned to town with haste, pressing against one another on account of his resurrection from the dead, while Pilate was holding the wrappings in his arms. And the multitudes wished to see those men who had come to town on the occasion of the feast of the Passover from every district and from every tribe. Then Pilate repaired to the house of the high priest along with the crowd, and they demolished it and plundered all what he had. And Pilate said to the centurion, Oh, my brother, you saw with your own eyes and heard with your own ears the great number of people who believed in Yahushua HaMessiah on account of the resplendent miracles witnessed also by the wicked and accursed Yehudim who did not believe. Let us here end the discourse on the virgin and her sweet wailing and on the death and the resurrection of her son from the dead. These words have been written by Gamaliel and Nicodemus, the venerable chiefs, as, and they placed them in Jerusalem, the holy city, and in all the districts that surround it by the grace and love of our Adonai and Elohim, Yahushua, Messiah, to whom are due glory, power, honor, 
forever and ever. Amen. Here ends this great discourse. May Elohim have mercy upon the, the scribe, the reader, the attentive hearers, and all the believers. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. That was some really good reading, James. That was... <laughs> really good job. Uh, when I asked, I was actually kind of suffer. I mean, having a hard time uh, reading there for a while, and I asked you to take over, and I didn't realize you would end the whole thing. But that was very enjoyable, and I hope you, everyone else listening, uh, enjoyed that as well. And Rob, are you there with us? What are you? Did you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, that was excellent reading. Uh, I love the animation. And the voice changes there is excellent. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, as far as adding thoughts, I mean, yeah, I got a, I got several here. Um, I what I'll try to do here is I'll start from the beginning so I don't skip over too much. But I thought it was interesting to see that uh, Miriam is referred to as the dove of Hannah. Uh, I thought that was interesting, and also that uh the timing in in what this writing says here is that tomorrow we shall we shall have our passover so we see that uh yeshua yeshua was uh uh being crucified uh either that eve before the day before right over the passover and confirmation there and uh what did you find interesting about the Dove of Hannah? Well, I I don't know much about that. I've heard that reference before, but I don't I don't have any his, history on it. I didn't get the research or anything, but I I just thought that was interesting that she's called that. Do Do you have any info on that? Any anything you you recall? No, I didn't. But I I did pick up on the Passover uh, passage, and it is definitely a um, a confirmation that. Passover was the day he was crucified on that at least, you know, we could look at it two ways. If, if this book is legit, it is a confirmation of that. But if it's not, it just shows that, you know, obviously, according to church tradition, uh, that, you know, that was Passover. And, um, you know, that's obviously not going to convince someone either way if they believe Passover was the Last Supper or um you know, vice versa. You know what I what I actually really liked about this book is well there there was an interesting little um kind of flippin narr narration and I, I don't even know when it happened. It happened there was this, this segue where it started with obviously the, the laments of the Virgin and Miriam is just going on and on and on and on and on. And then all of a sudden it just changes and all of a sudden it's Pontius Pilate. And I really enjoyed the the dialogue from for Miriam. She comes across it. I, it made me like her more because she comes across as as a real person in this. Like if anyone has ever been to you know the Middle East, and like in that culture, they know how to weep. They can they can put on a big show with tears. I have I have been in. Uh, Jerusalem on multiple occasions and just watched groups of women just physically weeping and mourning and just wailing. And I could, I could picture that through this entire thing. And what she, what she actually reminds me of is, um, I mean, this would be like an oxymoron to say that she reminds me of a Jewish mother, but she, 
she does seem very Jewish in this, but uh, like, you know, like an Italian mother or a Mediterranean women, mother, like if you've ever been to, you know, it, basically like somebody's mother, if you've ever been over to like your bro's house, like you think when you were a teenager and you go over and, you know, you go over to his house and the, he, he's got his mother and everyone knows his mother and the way she talks, like, I don't even know how to describe this, but I really appreciate, I really like that whole character, that the whole side of her and and something to note here dialogues are are condensed and shortened uh for the purposes of scripture a good example of this is when the serpent is tempting Hava in the garden it he we get like one or two lines like he shows up he says like two or three sentences she responds and she eats the fruit when in reality you figure there could have been 20 minutes of dialogue which would have been filled several pages uh, but it's condensed. And so here we see where, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on, which is the way it would have really been if she's wandering through the streets and she's just weeping and, and saying all this these different. This is all BS. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, but I, I don't understand why this is, uh, why this would be BS, but um, thank you for your contribution. Um, anyways, going back, uh, Rob, uh, I've lost my train of thought now. So, yeah, Robert, I think the language is a little overboard there. I mean, there's no need to use that kind of language. I, I don't. I think that that person hot mic by mistake. I don't think they were referring to anything that we were discussing. <laughs> Just my two cents. I server muted them, but I don't think that they're they're talking about this. But I'll message them okay. and see. Okay. Good. Yeah, it didn't make sense. All right. Anyways. Um, well, we'll just have to edit this whole portion out. Yeah. Rob, hey, I wanted uh, to add, I wanted to add um, the what was interesting is the discussion on the apostles where they all scattered to giving some detail as to why each one uh, was not present. And I thought that was interesting uh, for for the details that was given on them. And, and a lot of it made sense, too. You know, there, there's a few other things in here. Uh, unfortunately, the the first nine pages, I think I read like the first seven to nine pages. And obviously, I wasn't able to take notes while I was reading that. But when James was doing his amazing radio, I wish James could like uh, just I could hire him to sit by my bed every night when I go to bed and he could just read me a bedtime story, put me to sleep. I'll do but, it for free. <laughs> you are in my neck of the woods. I could have you come by one night. Um. There was a couple of things, Rob, when we did the, the the Hebrew Gospel of John, one of the observations you had in there was how the tomb appeared to be like a grave in the ground. Yes. And and some of the, these were the some of the things I was paying attention to in here. What was really fascinating on um I was I was reading from of course the PDF, so on page nine and ten. It talks about the soldiers. Uh, Mary was talking. I think it was Mary talking in this context, and it said that the soldiers were lying on the sepulcher. Well, that's kind of interesting because if yep. the tomb, if the tomb is, you know, like we picture it with a big stone in front of it, it's like a rock in the mountain. They can't lie on that. That's a little awkward. So it gives this picture that they're lying on it. And then on the next page, uh, when she goes to the the tomb or the sepulcher, it says that she looks in four directions from the tomb, all four directions. So she is standing over it, looking down on it. So again, exactly. that's, 
that was some really interesting confirmation to what we uh, had read in the Hebrew Gospel of John. It's one of the, it's, it's these kind of things I look for because it, had this been written hundreds of years later, um, it seems like it would be more likely to be a, you know, your traditional tomb. And um, well, some I, of it, yeah, I think go ahead. Where people get that uh, thought is when they mention roll away the stone. And depending on the translation of that, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a round stone being rolled you know, away as a door. It, it could just mean it being rolled over, the, 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 the faceplate, so to speak, being rolled over to the other side to open, you know, basically open it. So right. that's what confuses a lot of people with that thought. But when you look at the other context, and as you just mentioned, it points to that it being, you know, in the ground. And so and also, also notice they, it confirmed here again that it talks about the soldiers of Herod. You know, they were ordered and given the power to crucify him. So yes. we see that we see that confirmation here, too. Yes. And I. I had read this book for the first time, probably somewhere around the midpoint of our Hebrew Gospel of John study. And and so I kind of went over that, and I didn't really pay attention to it. And it was after we realized going through... And so just for everyone listening, if you weren't a part of our Hebrew Gospel of John or Yochanan study, one of the big bombshells that we discovered at the end, and we had to source all four Hebrew Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in every place in the Greek where it talks about uh, Roman soldiers crucifying Yahushua, it it seemed to stress, it didn't say that, it seemed to stress uh, a, a, a word for Pharisee, that it, it was actually the Yahudim who actually crucified him. Some people will say, you know, big deal, you know, it's like almost like politically incorrect to, to note that he was murdered or anybody killed him. Uh, and the fact is, is that he was murdered and somebody had to do it and it wasn't the Romans. And that was, as Rob pointed out, that was a further confirmation in here where it said it wasn't the Roman soldiers who crucified him. It was actually the soldiers of Herod. Uh, I did find that, and it was well, actually it was, here. It says uh, it says Pharisees and Herod. I don't know where Rob got the soldiers, but it says Pharisees and Herod. That was a complete confirmation of everything that we read in the Hebrew Gospels. Yeah, which page? Because on page six it says soldiers of Herod, and then I think on mm -hmm. eight it says mm -hmm. the Jews and Herod. Jew, Jews, uh, and it also said Pharisees at some. On uh, like in the beginning, it says Pharisees and Herod, or Jews and Herod, whatever. But definitely, he didn't say that. I, I mean, it was a confirmation that it's it, that Pilate handed them uh, handed him to the Jews. There was a nice little touch on one of the centurions who was guarding him too, and it said that he only had one eye. And he had lost it in a war. I, I just thought that was like a nice little touch, like all these little, the ways they're describing the people in here, and I could visualize it like I was there. Uh, there was a few other things in here that, again, going back to, to Mary or Miriam and how think, ways I never thought about her before and how she described herself as an orphan. Now, 
you know what she meant there because there were uh, there were clear indications in this that she was raised in the temple we had already seen that last summer when we read through books like the um the infancy gospel of of uh yaakov and i think it was in that one uh where it talked about mary being raised in the temple and how her mother uh, and father handed her over to that and so it was like she never had a father and mother after that she was she was raised as an orphan. She had no family. And I've also in the last year really come to terms with the fact that I really do believe she was a virgin for her whole life. I was raised my entire life uh, saying, you know, being told that she was not a virgin after uh, Yahushua was born and that, you know, she had other children with Yosef and that that was a Catholic doctrine. But I've changed my opinion on that. You know, whether that might just be something that the Catholics are absolutely correct in that I, she remained a virgin her whole entire life. It makes total sense when you read these books. and But the point here is that she had no heir. Yahushua was her heir. And this is, again, a very biblical concept with it, you know, going back to Torah that, you know, a person is to have an heir. And uh, so here is her one family. She's an orphan. She doesn't have anybody in her life. Uh, Yosef's dead. And it... it, it and she's like, now I lost my son, my one heir. He's dead. And this this makes total sense now, connecting it to when Yahushua was on the cross. And he looks to her, and he looks to John. Yochan, he says, this is your mother. And then he looks to his mother and says, this is your son. And that's interesting because apparently he was taking care of her. He, They had nobody else. I don't know why he didn't look to Yaakov. Or I guess Yaakov wasn't at the cross. He had fled. Um, he was pitted here in the garden, which I find to be really fascinating that he was with them, which according to Acts chapter, I think two, um, he was a qualifier that he was with, uh, Yahushua, his brother, the entire ministry from beginning to end, even though he's never really mentioned much in the gospels, but it just, it's interesting that he would say to Yochanan, this is your mother now. Why not say to his brother that that's, I don't know. That's interesting. I also wanted to mention that it talks about his resurrection. It's it's sta it states on page ten uh, that while it was still dark, that Yeshua had had risen, and they went to the the tomb while it was still dark. So we see that his resurrection was was before sunrise, so to speak. Yes, that was another great confirmation that it was not a Sunday uh, resurrection. And, um, you know, I guess we can all argue when the day begins, but it was right. clear. It was clearly not a daylight Sunday event. And, um, you know, of course, I'm of the opinion that it happened before sunset on Sabbath, that he resurrected and he would have been hanging out there all night in the whereabouts of the garden or attending to other business or whatever he was doing. Uh, one of you know one of my favorite scenes in here was there were, there was a lot of similarities to this and the Gospel of Nicodemus. If for those of you who are part of that that reading we did uh, several months ago, and it actually credits Nicodemus here with Gamaliel that it was kind of written by both of them, which again is interesting because there's a lot of similarities. And in the Gospel of Nicodemus, Pilate was also you know. 
having a lot of knowledge about Torah and kind of turning the tables on the Yahudim and showing them their own errors. Well, he does the same thing here, like when he comments about the uh, the ripped garments and so on and so forth, which uh, James read that so uh, <laughs> poetically and beautiful. But the, the, the scene I really liked was when uh, the Yahudim have decided, because we know there's multiple Gospels where it talks about how they were like paying off these these guards to give false accounts of what happened to Yahushua and how he didn't resurrect. Well, Pilate decides he's going to separate all four of them and ask them questions differently. We see the same thing happened in the book of Susanna. When a young Daniel, there was a woman, uh, Susanna, who was... Um, uh, accused of of having uh, adult relationships, and these these two men wanted to you know put her to death if she didn't. I think I think it was like she if they she didn't agree to be with them or whatever like that. And so Daniel separates these two leaders of Israel, and he um, he finds them both in error. And so Pilate does the same thing, and he almost comes across here like he's bestowed with wisdom. And he is able to, it doesn't say, you know, that he was filled with the Ruach HaKadosh or anything like that, but he has that same approach that Daniel did. And I love how, like, he showed each of them an error as he asked them those questions. James, are you still here with us? Yes, sir. I was. What, what were your thoughts? There are uh, multiple different opinions on who the beloved disciple is. And I'm sure you've heard them all. But to me, this really just nailed in the fact that it was John. Because I have not, I have not heard multiple opinions on that. Really? Now you can enlighten me. Who are the yeah, others? Um, so Yochanan is um, theorizes one. I've heard uh, Lazarus being referred to as one, um, and then um, there's some vague. Um, insinuations in the scholarly world they like to keep things uh, murky and not too certain um but this definitely to me made it very clear that he is the beloved one because not only in the fact that miriam was staying with him in his house and then going to the cross with him and having all this discourse with him he was the only one that showed up the only one and you know he tried to redeem Tifa at that one point, because it was essentially prophesied that he would deny, and through that denial, we would essentially stand a better chance. And the fact that John would know that at the time was also very, um, I don't know, I think there was a lot of wisdom throughout many of the individuals written here, but the way that it's written isn't, it, it doesn't read like a... Um, like a spiritual inspiration kind of thing. It reads like a, a historical document from eyewitness accounts. So you don't you don't really witness the Ruach falling on someone. You don't really witness that happening unless it's bestowed to you after the fact. So I think I think there was a lot of wisdom and Ruach pouring out that wasn't really um, talked about. But um, that's that's a thought that comes to me right now. I'll, I'll probably have more soon. You know, you know, one, no, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to add one more thing. Um, 
that I noticed, and I dropped it in the text, the chat, is we see Miriam saying, oh, my Adonai, as she's seeing this vision uh, or this light, and it's Adonai there, uh, is what she is calling him. You know everything. What happened to my son? So here she is talking to her son, who she does not recognize. And what does he say to her? He says, look at my face, oh, mother, and you will recognize me. And I, I, I kind of turned back to that, that initial thought we had done in, in Yokinen study uh, that I proposed why people didn't recognize Yeshua after his resurrection, that the possibility that he went through a purification process because he took the sins of the world upon him. So he had to go through a purification process in uh, coming forth through the other side. And I postulate that perhaps his head was shaved, his beard was shaved, his eyebrows were shaved, he was bald. And so the recognition was not there. So that's why, I, you know, Yeshua was telling her, look at my face, you know, recognize me. That's just my opinion. But it's, I just wanted to mention that because I think, you know, this is interesting. Even his mother didn't recognize him until he tells her that. There was also that great scene there where she saw all the uh, or many of the resurrected saints coming out of Sheol, which I thought was really great, yeah, too. In white robes. Yeah. Now there would be there was one section towards the end of it where in the past I would have given it a big fat red flag and I've gone all over the place with the Shroud of Turin. Back in the day, I actually back in the probably around the year two thousand it was, I remember attending a seminar on the Shroud of Turin and back then I was really caught up with it. I was captivated by it. And uh you know, all the the scientific analysis and they would you know talk about how they knew there were two people that that beat the man in the shroud and one of them was left-handed and they talk you know all the, all the you know how he was sunburned and how there was like you know his knees were like uh bruised and all this different stuff really fascinating things and then i went through this phase where i was like no there's no way that's not the shroud of yahusha or i'd say shroud of jesus uh, that this is like a like a Masonic thing, and it goes back to the Knights Templar and all that. But ever since the whole mud flood arguments, the Millennial Kingdom, I've started to look at the Shroud in in a unique new way again. Where I'm like, no, I think this might actually be legit. And you know, they talk about how it came out of the Middle Ages, you know, the Dark Ages, and they can't explain it. All this kind of stuff. And here we see in this passage towards the end of it an obvious reference to the Shroud, and um, you know, again, I would have put a red flag on that before, but I, I actually really enjoyed the story that they wrapped the, the, uh, the dead man in it. They, you know, at the bottom of the well, and he came to life. We find out that it's the man on who was next to him on the cross, and this is a, a, a fun tie-in with the Gospel of Nicodemus because this man also appears there at the Gospel of Nicodemus, and. It's another moment where I, I felt like this was a very Middle Eastern text, which is kind of an oxymoron again, especially since it comes out of Egypt anyways. But it's it said that he was like the only one who gave comforting words to Yahushua while he was on the cross. And it reminds me, of course, Yahushua's words that, um, you know, those who, you know, feed and take care of the widows and the orphans and 
people in prison are really feeding him, that kind of stuff. But it, it, it was, you know, there's, there's this great emphasis in Middle Eastern cultures of taking care of other people. And, you know, famously by tradition, Abraham had a, a, a tent with openings on all four sides. We saw the same thing in the Testament of Job when we read that. And, and Job's house was the same thing where it was opening on four sides. And the reason being is so that, you know, all the, 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 the anyone who needs taken care of, the, the poor could come in and they could eat. He could greet them from four sides. And my point is, is that there is a huge emphasis on hospitality there. And yet, Nobody was showing him hospitality, obviously, when he was on the cross. Uh, I, I should say nobody, but pretty much everybody was not. And so you have the one guy on the, the, the tree, the cross next to him, who's showing him hospitality and he's rewarded for it. And um, so I, I like that little touch as well. I think those are all the notes that I had on this. Okay, I had I had something to add to a question that Billy <clears throat> asked just now. Um, Billy says, and she said, my only son. And she also said that he has no brothers or sisters. Did her and Joseph not consummate the marriage after Yahushua was born? Doesn't the King James Version say Yeh Joseph knew her not till after she gave birth, insinuating that he did at some point? So I, I caught that too. Um, as you guys were bringing up earlier, also, she said to him, you know, you have no brother, no sister. Um, but also there was an Indi there was a, a moment when she called Yosef her father. And I mean, there, there might be some cultural stuff in that, but I, I, I would submit that that is her referring to him as, you know, her her caretaker because as you read in um you know the infancy gospels he was a old man and she was like a teenager and he took her in as like a, a statement of respect and he was he was he was chosen by this drawing of lots and i don't i don't believe that they ever consummated their marriage i believe that he was chosen as a steward and he was to care for her and um, I think this in itself, how she refers to him as her father, is interesting when she calls herself later on an orphan without having a father or mother. So she was an orphan because she was set into the temple by herself and her mother and her father had rescinded her. But then Yah redeemed that and gave her a father, Yosef, to care after her. So that's just my two cents on that. Yeah, and I, I fully agree. In fact, this is where I've had kind of a paradigm shift on this, too. I, I started out saying a little earlier that I was raised in a very evangelical worldview where, you know, you, you see uh, uh, Joseph and Mary kind of in a romance. They're both young and in love. And there was that there was that uh, movie that came out like 15 years ago. The Nativity Story it was the same thing. And uh, young lovers and and. That you know they didn't consummate the marriage until afterwards, but I was told in the same vein that all these ideas that Joseph was older and that the other brothers and sisters were through Joseph and not her. That was all Catholic tradition, and this is one of the reasons we're having this discussion right now. We're going through deep text because all these books that I was forbidden to read, I started reading them. I'm like, wow, this is really incredible stuff, and what. One of the things we did see with 
the the infancy gospel of Yaakov. Uh, I don't think we read it through as a group. The infancy gospel of Matthew, which might be included in the series. Uh, we saw the um, uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas, and there were probably some others. But we see where Joseph or Yosef, he actually was not excited marrying Miriam, uh, taking her on, but he was loyal to his calling with Yahuwah. And he was chosen, and all these other men were anxious to get their hands on Miriam, and the lot fell on him. And he's like, okay, fine. And and he became her caretaker. And so Yaakov, or James, was actually at the birth, and he was there to help facilitate the birth. One of the things, uh, Josh is recording this, I was, I was reading the Infancy Gospel of Yaakov uh, about a year ago, and he was the one to bring it up. And I'm like... I think you're right. And he made the observation that it it's it's like when Yahushua was born, that he just uh, he was not born through uh, natural means. Like there was a light, and he was just born. And the miracle of of the virgin birth uh, is that Miriam. I won't go into the physicalities of this. Everybody here should kind of be able to figure this out. She was still a virgin after he was born. All right, like that shouldn't have been uh if he came out through the 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 chute the canal and uh it was uh, it might have been salome uh who kind of put her finger up there and she's like oh, she's still a virgin uh and of course i've shown other references as well uh it's second enoch which we will be going through in this series in second enoch noah's nephew the first michelle zedek is born in the same way he just appears just he doesn't come out the natural way he appears and this appears to be a Meshelzedek um tradition that happens Yahushua Yahushua was a Meshelzedek so all that to say just to answer that question yes I am fully convinced that uh that Yosef was much older he had a whole other marriage he was a widower he had a whole family he takes Miriam on and uh so she had no other children this was it this was her sole heir uh Yahushua no, um, what about the verses in the New Testament um, that talks about um, identifying um, Yeshua, the son of Mary, the brother of, you know, James, and um, mentioning his brothers in the same sentence that mentioning his mother. So how do you reconcile those verses? I, I, I don't reconcile them. I mean, they... Uh, or I guess I do where I don't. I, to me, yes, I believe that Yaakov was his brother. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Yahushua was the son of Joseph. Now, keep in mind, if we want to reconcile, uh, which gospel is it? Is it Luke or Matthew that uh, does the genealogy, genealogy with Joseph? One of them, um, I think, is it? Matthew that does Mary, and then Luke that does Joseph, Joseph. I'm not sure. But obviously, we know that he doesn't come from Joseph's genetics, and yet there's a whole genealogy through Joseph. So clearly, he was the son of Joseph. We just know that it wasn't through his seed. Um, in that sense, Joseph adopted him. He was his son. It was like he was his own son, just like it was uh, uh, Yaakov and the others. That's how I rectify it. Uh, I believe that... Um, for example, uh, I, I don't know if I ever said this before. I have a younger brother who was adopted. He's actually my cousin's son. He's my cousin once removed. 
but he's my brother. I don't think of him as my cousin. I think of him as my brother. So I would think that uh, Yahushua's brothers and sisters would have thought of him in the same way. That's how I would, um, yeah, adoption. James can talk about that. He's uh, adopted some uh, beautiful daughters. Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of adoption, I, I feel like we're all, we all claim to be adopted by the Most High, right? And um, that was the, the key factor into my heart being softened towards adopting children into my own family because I had claimed my whole life to be um, adopted by him, but I wasn't willing to you know, this is just personal. I'm not trying to put adoption conviction on anybody, but I had, I had said some pretty harsh things about children that were not of my own genetics. And he really broke me down and made it clear to me that all throughout scripture, all throughout history, it's, you know, the adoption story resounds and it's, it's, it's heavy and it's, it's thick. Um, he, he adopted Jacob. He, he adopted Abraham. He, he adopted, you know, every single one of us. So it would make sense that, you know, he would find a man worthy of adopting his own son into the family of, in the same way that he adopted the mother of his own son into the family of that same guy. Now, again, I just want to stress with everybody here that, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep at night if, Somebody here listening now or when this goes on YouTube land and, and podcasting and other areas, if they're like, oh, I can't buy this. This is too much. That, that's no sweat off my back. It's, that I put this out here because and, and what I have learned as I have started, you know, I'm referring to these other books like the Gospel of Nicodemus, uh, uh, Testament of Job, Infancy Gospels. I know Rob is here for uh, those studies, uh, Josh, some of the others here, and I feel like I've learned so much more. And one thing that I have um, come to the knowledge of is that these books, which now people don't know when the Gospel of Gamaliel was really written. It's a mystery, which I find fascinating. I love a good mystery. But a lot of these extra biblical books, you know, they were written, they'll say in the second or third century, whatever. They will talk about how that like they'll mention Yaakov, and they'll uh, there's I think the apocalypse of James of Yaakov, and it says uh, that he was the brother of Yahushua, but not physically, right? He was not the physical brother. My point is, is that you you see these consistent themes all across the board from very early on that were we could at least walk away from this going that was a popular belief, like people believe that that Yahushua had no physical brother on this earth. And I think those, that's all worth noting. Now, did anybody else have, um, James has spoken, Rob has spoken. I've done plenty of speaking. Is there anybody else here who was listening, who has any observations? Yeah. Um, the soldier with the bad eye. Do you guys think that could be a representation of Longinus? or an additional witness for Longinus, or something completely different. Tell me about Longinus a little bit more. Uh, is, he my, the immortal, is he the immortal soldier? I'm not really sure, but uh, from the, the um, 
Thracian Chronicles that Zinn had read, it talked about him stabbing Christ in the side and the blood falling into his lame eye and curing the blindness in that eye. And I was wondering if this was maybe somehow a connection there. I don't know if anybody else is familiar with that text. I've only heard of it in passing, just like you mentioned. I have yet to read it, so I can't comment on that. The only reason I would suspect this is different is that this person with the bad eye, the centurion, you know, it said that he had lost it in a war, which is you know pretty badass, right? Like it's, it gives this guy some, uh, some you know, some history. Uh, but his eye was still bad at this point, and it was healed. So, which is the they, same story with Longinus, right? From, but but it didn't it happen while he was at the cross, or did it happen later? Well, some of the texts I've heard that it happened at the cross. So I was just wondering if this could be a representation of, or an additional witness. I don't know. I'm just speculating here at this point. But it, I found it interesting the similarities of this part of the story versus the Thracian Chronicles te- uh, story of Longinus. Yeah, I, that's good speculation. Thank you for bringing that up. I have no comment on that, unless if someone else does. Um, I was going to say, so I, I, I followed along with Zen's on that, and that was the first thing I thought of when I heard of the soldier here. But from what I remember, and I didn't read it either too much, but I've listened to Zen's talk about it. I think his eye got healed from the blood splashing in his eye when he pierced his side. That was kind of what they had said. And um, it was interesting because after Roni's kind of discovery about the um, how the Pharisees were the ones that actually crucified Yahusha, what I kind of struggled with was whether to, to take that, um, you know, for what it is or not. Because I was like, well, if the Pharisees crucified him, then how could this um, Longinus have, have pierced his side if it was the Pharisees. But then actually reading this this um, Gam- this reading right now of the Gamaliel one, um, it makes sense because here it said the head of the Jews and that Herod appointed soldiers to go with them. So it kind of correlates both. So that's, right. that's kind of my sense on that. Yute, I don't know. You had made a comment in here. I don't know if you feel like talking about it i don't want to bring put you on the spot if you don't want to turn on your mic that's fine but you had said why is it important for mary to not have had children if messiah himself is said to have children so i think that's interesting because you quoted isaiah 53 10 let me see if i could put um scripture bot here um see what isaiah 53 10 that honestly that's the first i've ever heard uh it said but uh he was pleased to Yahuwah was pleased to crush him. He laid sickness on him that when he made himself an offering for guilt, he would see a seed. He would prolong his days and the pleasure of Yahuwah prosper in his hand. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've often speculated. I, I've put it out there. What if Yahushua did have children? I've yet to personally read anything that said he did. Um, but I found that interesting. But again, why is it important for Mary to not have had children? I don't think it's important that she did or didn't. All I'm going off is, is probably at least a dozen books at this time that I've read that all claim that she was a virgin her entire life. And she apparently came from the tradition of uh, these you know, Vestal virgins. Now, we see in uh, temples and in pagan cultures 
where there would be virgins and temples. Um, I, I don't, I mean, there's obviously, I don't know if this was a tradition. It's certainly not in Torah, but apparently there were young virgins in the temple in Yerushalayim. Now, in her case, the reason why they needed to remove her uh, was because she was becoming the age of uh, becoming a woman, and they she they couldn't have someone who was impure in the temple. As you guys know, that 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 would huge problem. Uh, we see that in Leviticus, and you know it would have been impure. So they had to, they had to marry her off to somebody, and they found Yosef. Um, but again, if she had decided to uh, to have relations with Joseph, that's not a problem. I don't see any doctrinal problem with that. I'm just going off of these books that I'm reading that. Uh, says they never did, so it, it would it would be like if um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a scenario. If I mean I've been with the same woman my entire life. I've only been with one woman, and uh, but there would I don't know a situation where there be a young woman that he's taken care of, and we bring her in, and she's just in her house, and I don't know. <laughs> it just I, we never have you know she, yeah. That's what it was like. He just took care of her. And what I'm saying is that we, we maybe we grew up in evangelicalism with the wrong idea of Joseph and Mary. Maybe, um, I don't know, maybe these ancient texts had it more right that she was literally just taken care of by Joseph and that was it. So that he was her husband in that way, you know, that he was her provider, her caretaker. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you take I'm getting nothing. You take as You take as excited as I am that you are <laughs> throwing in your two cents. I'm excited that you're here tonight. Ute hasn't been around for a long time and uh, I can't hear anything. It's really choppy. Uh, I'm I'm sorry for that. So Does anyone else have any thoughts? Oh yeah, um at the beginning and I I'm sorry I I hadn't found the uh, text you were reading at the, when we first started. But you had read something which made me write down the notes uh many have already come in his name i know that was really early on yeah i i unfortunately i wasn't taking down notes when i was reading the first several pages can you uh talk about that a little bit more because i'm not sure on the context uh, it was about the Gam when you're reading about gamaliel and it was talking about people had come in his name and then they had fallen away because it wasn't real and whatnot. And it just made me wonder about said, many will come in my name. And was that more evidence for a post millennial kingdom? You mean like, was this book written? Uh, it, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay. I, you got my interest there. Cause you mentioned millennial kingdom, but I, I still don't get the context. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I'm struggling with it myself because it was early on and I hadn't found the, the uh, link for the text. Uh, but you were talking about the Gamal the Gamaliel stuff and you were referencing something about talking about many uh, 
people claiming to be Messiah coming and starting a movement and then the movement falling away. Yeah. Yeah. So that I was reading from the Wikipedia article, I believe, where Gamaliel is accredited in the book of Acts. It's when Kepha slash you know Peter and right. the disciples are brought in front of the Sanhedrin. He's telling them he he is referring to two other dudes who were like messianic figures, uh, or they had a huge movement and they were killed and their movement fell away. And so he was bringing the same logic forward. He's like, look, if this guy didn't resurrect, if their claims are 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 bunk, then all of this is going away. So let's just let's let them have their peace, save you know have their crazy talk. And, you know, they might get a few followers, but it's just going to die away. So, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Well, what was what he was referring to? Was that uh, post Christ on the cross or? Yeah, so that was that was in the book of Acts. And Gamaliel was that's his one appearance in the Bible uh, in canon, if I'm not mistaken, except for the Shaul comment where he mentions that he was raised the feet of Gamaliel and it's not real specific what that meant um uh maybe like they had you know like it was like a class with other students you know at the feet but um <clears throat> what i had also said was that there were other messianic figures that rose up throughout the years uh, over the next 50 60 years or so up to like according to official history leading up to like 110 80 or whatever and they had big movements of people and they were killed and they yeah, it all fell away even in the destruction of of jerusalem in 70 ad there were three people in the city of jerusalem that claimed to be the messiah from what we found in the writings of Josephus and everything, yeah, it's just they were killed and the whole movement fell away. So that right. that was that was his whole logic. That's very interesting because that does lead to more evidence of the post millennial kingdom, at least in my mind. Well, make the connection for me because I'm not seeing the connection. Well, because he said, uh, and I don't remember if it was Revelation or uh, one of the four Gospels where he said, uh, "Many will come in my name." Uh, but from what you were reading there, it just struck out to me is many have already come in his name. Correct. Which led to more evidence of it being a post-millennial kingdom. Yeah, and uh, Ronit and I read uh, from one of those, uh, a book in the late 1800s that was written, and it was specifically stating uh, from many many older written sources that that exact thing you're saying, um, you know, some pieces from Josephus and others written during that time that there were as many false Christs that were popping up and so forth and gave some examples. So, yeah. Cheers, guys. That was great. Hey, Noel. Graham would like to say something. Um, and he's hey. having trouble with his uh, mic. So you need to mute when you're not talking. and. and Unmute when you're ready. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Hi. Hi, Noel. This is Graham. So I, uh, on the topic of Yahusha's brothers, I'd heard Zen speaking a while back. Someone said, I, I couldn't remember the book. Someone said it was uh, the Infancy Gospels, but uh, that Joseph was much older than Mary and had been previously married. Perhaps he was a widower and had children from his first marriage so that perhaps they were uh, his half brothers. Yes. That's, that's the picture that 
it is. So he had, and I can't think of all all of them up front. I think he had two sisters, three brothers, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that. And one of them was named was Judas or Yehuda. One of them was, of course, we all know Yaakov. I can't remember the other brother's name. Um, I mean, we obviously know Jude. Uh, and then, and then two sisters. And, but they would have been, yeah, exactly, half brothers. And, and what I point out here again, guys, is that one of the the two gospels that gives the genealogy gives it through Joseph, but we know that his seed did not come through Joseph. He only it could have only come. Well, the seed obviously, uh, <laughs> you know, it would have been through the uh, through the uh, you know through the father, but uh, we, we the genealogy through Mary. So when we see this language of him having brothers. It's in the same context of Joseph being his father. It was his earthly father, but not his physical father. So I, I will say, uh, this is Graham again. I am in a second marriage myself. We have a blended family and six daughters between us. And they, even though they're technically not related, other than through mar- through the marriage of their parents, they call each other their sisters. So, you know, perhaps it's something like that, but... Um, but yeah, I'm confused uh, still about the uh, the seed and, and the lineage too. Still trying to figure that one out. Right. Well, the, I mean the this the lineage. Wendy. Go ahead, Wendy. Um, with all this dilemma, okay. Here's here's an example. My friend, they're both uh, have two kids, at, by different different you know marriage, and their kids got older and they adopted three kids together. And so they had that. And also, um, I am adopted. I have a stepbrother. Um, I have a half-brother. I have uh, adopted brothers and all kinds of things. Somebody, brother and sister. And like we are mentioning, it's there. But the only thing is, I can only thing I can get to is Mary. She made a that she would never know a man. And for us, I, a lot of people say, oh, you know, after you get married, she made a vow and she kept it. And that's why they call her Virgin Mary, because she was a virgin for the, all her life. I don't know. It's been in other, other books and everything else. And everybody calls her Virgin Mary. And the fact that the Catholics do it. So a lot of people don't want to, um, you know, go with that saying that she was a virgin all her life. I don't know. No, that's I, you. You bring up a good point, and there's there's a phrase of you know controlled opposition, and because the Catholics, you know, hold some books in their hands that the Protestants, you know, they they don't want anything to do with or whatever. It's it's idea because the Catholics put this idea forward. That's proof that this is error, that she must have had relationship with Joseph because the Catholics say otherwise. It's not just the Catholics. I, I would imagine if I looked at the, the, the Orthodox church, they also believe she was a virgin for her entire life. I would be interested to look at the, um, the, uh, what is it? The, uh, what Bible did have Enoch in it? Um, the Ethiopian church. I'd be interested to yeah. see what the Ethiopians say. But point is, is that it's just the mainly my understanding, the evangelical Protestant church that they 
they almost did like a reversal because they were trying to break away. This is according to the official narrative, of course. Uh, I always have to put that out there because people are going to call me on it. But they were trying to break away from the Catholic Church and they were trying to get a, away from the worship of the saints and the idols and that kind of stuff. And so it's like they they o- overcompensated this. They're like, no, she had she had sex. She had relationship. She had other children, people. And they had to throw out all these other books and that kind of stuff. And all I'm saying is, so when we go back and we see the all these other documents that were written, they just claim she was a virgin her whole life. And it's it's this isn't an issue of doctrine. It's not an issue of why did she have to or not. It's just she did. A lot of people remain virgins their entire life. For example, let me let me throw the flip on this. If I were to go into any Christian church and say. Jesus had children. People would flip their lids. I mean, you know, we have the whole Da Vinci Code thing and all that and the Holy Grail. People know about that now. It's maybe not as taboo as it was 20 years ago. But it's like, oh, no, 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 no. He was a virgin his whole life, but not his mother. His mother was not a virgin. You see what I'm saying? It's just like, it's... I don't know. I don't know why this has to be like a big issue where people get so hung up on whether Mary was a virgin or not. When, you know, Jesus yeah. has to be a virgin, it's like, okay, yes, let's say Yahushua was a virgin. Let's say he never got married. Great. He was a virgin. Why couldn't his mother be a virgin? I don't know. That, yeah. that's no. Yeah, Noel, I just want to add to that is what we have to get past is the, the narrative where religion is pits each other against each other so if you're in one one belief system if you're in this uh this religion they're going to teach you that the other religion's wrong and whatever they teach is wrong and you kind of bucket everything into it and similar to what you're stating there you know if someone is going to talk about catholic doctrine then they're going to say well if if the Catholics believe it, then it's wrong. It's no, 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 no. What you have to understand is there's truth in every religion. That's the only reason why the religion can continue is with some truth. So uh, unless you're totally wicked and you believe all, you know, the, the opposite, you know, uh, and so forth. But there's truth in it. And that's what people have to understand is that even though there are pieces of it that we know are not are not in Scripture, there are some that are in scripture and we have to reconcile that and take an honest look at some of these things and not let the biases of the mainstream teachings direct our path and look at them and weigh them out. And so I, I, I agree that why why can't Mary have been a virgin and stayed a virgin? You brought up some good points. I mean, if people can believe in a talking donkey, then why not this? Uh, we believe in miracles and so forth. So that's my point. I've got a suggestion and a request at the same time that may help clarify some of this. Uh, can someone in here actually bring up an Old Testament uh, word virgin and the actual definition for it according to the Hebrew definition? And I think we might get a better understanding of what a virgin was actually uh, called as far as their definition. A young maiden. Uh, yeah, that's, so in, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. In the Go Old ahead. Testament. Yeah, in the Old Testament, it 
it doesn't say, okay, so virgin in Hebrew is Betula. And in the Old Testament, that's not the word that is used. The word that is used is Alma, um, which means a young, a young woman. So um, the verse in Isaiah that talks about virgin, actually in Hebrew, it says Alma. That's, that's the word. And it refers to just a young a really young woman that hasn't been married yet. Now, the the, the Alma argument is really interesting because uh, I actually I, I have notes on this and I don't have them in front of me and I never got around to finishing this. But uh, Al- Alma was <laughs> this whole discussion. There was everybody knows a certain name. I won't conjure it now. There was a famous uh, Torah uh, YouTuber leader who um, basically went against uh, Yahushua and then all the Torah and stuff. The the argument that brought him down to say this is all fake. It actually started with the Alma argument uh, in Isaiah, and that was that was a really contested. That's you know heated argument. And it's interesting that when you look at the LXX, the Greek LXX, and also some of the Dead Sea Scroll texts, I think um, in the uh, one of the references I found was uh, that the prophesied the young Alma uh, was in the Twelve Patriarchs, which some of those were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and their understanding back then was that that the word Alma. Uh, so one of the the big points of contention is that when in Matthew, when the angels come forward and and quote Isaiah the the virgin, that they're actually misquoting what it actually means. And but you see, actually, there are there are multiple sources that it was commonly accepted in the what we would call the first century, and the century before that, that Alma literally meant a woman who did not have. Um, intercourse with a man and that was the miracle it wasn't just look to some young woman and she's going to give you a child it was the fact that a young woman uh that 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 was the sign that she gave birth to a child without any relation with a man so uh that's my take on it that's my two cents and i i i I agree with you um it as i said it refers to a a very young woman that hasn't been married yet. And in the Bible, you know, if you follow the, you know, the law, if you're obedient, then you're, you're not supposed to have any sexual relationship before you're married. Right. And so why would that be a sign if, right, unless, unless if that's the whole point? Yeah. It, it, it seems yeah. to remove the point of the sign if she's having intercourse with the man it's like that's great young woman who's not married had intercourse and that that's a sign from yah right that doesn't make any sense so i agree well i don't have a problem with her being a virgin up until the point where he was born but there is no reason why once that was fulfilled and that prophecy was done that she couldn't have went ahead and had sex with Joseph. I mean, come on, let's old guy, us, us old guys are perverts. There's no way in the world that I would marry a beautiful young woman. I mean, once I fulfilled what the angel told me, 
and you know to stay married with her even though she was pregnant and i wasn't the father of it once that's done and he's born i'm gonna be with that woman i mean why is it such a problem for people to believe that she had sex after he was born i don't see a problem or an issue with that in any way shape or form well let me just throw in here that i don't see a problem with it either right there would there would be no doctrinal theological issue with Joseph and Miriam getting together. Um, but that's not the evidence I see in many of these other books. Correct. Again, now, and th- what was so interesting about the infancy gospel of Yaakov was that. Yosef was this righteous man who, like all these other men, when when the temple priests announced they've got this young maiden who's up to be married now and she needs a care, like all these men were racing forward to marry her. But Yahuwah didn't choose any of those men. He chose the one guy who actually didn't want to marry her. And uh, like it wasn't a romance. It wasn't like this love romance. It was, it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, okay, uh, Yah chose me. I will take care of her. But it wasn't, it wasn't the sexual thing at all. So again, I just want to reiterate here that I have this is not an issue of immaturity of of me saying, um, oh, I just I can't see them getting together. My entire life, I thought they were. I've had a paradigm shift in the last year as I start to read these other books, and they all agree, all of them, the dozens of them. And we're going to be going through some of those in these series where it shows that. So I believe that they didn't have intercourse because I read it in these books, not because I'm trying to uh, imagine, you know, what I was taught by oral tradition. And I stress oral tradition in evangelicalism. Like, that's crazy. Like, the whole reason I think that they had intercourse is because the oral tradition of Christianity taught me that, not because the written text. So... Just want to, you know, press that. Yeah, no, I want to add also that, yeah, I mean, a, a person today w- would would fall in line with that. And even Noel agrees that, yeah, you know, the older man could have done that because she was as he was taking care of her as a husband. Uh, but because of the text, it says he had no interest and he took care of her because the angel talked to him about it. And so he, he feared uh, defiling her in any kind of way. And when he obviously heard when he found out she was uh, pregnant, he, he was like, I got to do away with her, you know, in some way, because he, at first he was, yeah, he, he, he was ticked off because he thought someone raped her or something because he was supposed to be watching over her and so forth. But anyway, uh, to to the point that was made is from the context we read, he he did not want uh, to defile or do or have anything to do with her, and even in the very beginning. So it is presumed that he didn't do anything afterwards either. Um, from all the context of the reading, could he have? Yeah, yeah, he could have. But from from what we we have read in the other books, that he, he it's nowhere in there. So just my two cents. And, and you know, as we go through this series um, again, I. I will be presenting books with you guys. We're going to be going through some very controversial reads in the weeks ahead where I'm going to be like, hey, guys, I'm going to don't shoot the messenger. I'm going to be reading this stuff to you. Um, The Gospel Gamaliel, all these, they're up for you to decide. Okay, I'm going to keep pushing this because 
people are going to have a very short memory and think that I'm Noel's claiming this is all scripture. But what Rob just said, it's very interesting that there are some consistent themes we see. I have yet to ever read a book that has straight out said that Mary and Joseph got together and they had all these children. Like I, I would like to see a book that straight out says that. Like we, we put things in there and, you know, we fill in the pieces in our mind and our imagination of, well, there's James. So he must've, you know, he's Jesus, Yahusha's brother. So he, you know, must've been through Mary, right? Like we kind of fill in these pieces, but I, all I'm saying is what if we have dozens of other witnesses, very early books before Roman Catholicism took over before Constantine, before even uh, before the Protestants, all that, which, you know, has a very different view. The early Christians uh, had a very, very, very different view over a lot of this than what we have been raised uh, to believe. Um, and on that point, um, we are kind of coming up towards the end. Did anyone else here have any other observation? I uh, think they liked or didn't like. Uh, about this book tonight. Yeah, I, I am. Okay. Go ahead, Mary. Okay, so I was just going to add quickly. Um, I think it was Rob who mentioned earlier that possibly Yahusha looked different because he was he could have possibly been bald and shaven. And that was interesting to me because I just think of, you know, the Nazarite vow. Maybe he had taken the Nazarite vow and then he had to shave because being dead in the tomb. I don't know. Just it's gotten me thinking. And then on that note, also, I just kind of wondered just my own thoughts, speculation. But in the text, it mentioned that Mary had not been to the tomb of her father, nor the tomb of um, Joseph. Um, so it made me wonder also if she had taken a Nazarite vow, because that's another thing, too, is that you wouldn't be able to be around um, dead, dead people. So just kind of thoughts. And that's it. Well, yeah, one thing we know that that Mary stayed pure. Um, and so even being raised in the temple, uh, the purity uh, teachings and ways uh, sh she continued in that because we as we read here, the many things she mentioned she has never done, and she stayed away from those scenarios uh, in in a clean, protected, I guess, lifestyle, I guess, if you will. And then regarding the the thought on the purification that I mentioned, we we went over that in our study of John as a as a postulation, um, as we we have read in the past in in the different uh, cleansing processes. Of like the leper, when the leper is unclean, they have to go, uh, you know, go in the water, and then after they're cleansed, and the priest cleans them. Um, uh, well, during that process, they have to shave their heads and eyebrows, all their hair, everything, um, so that they can be clean. And so I just postulate that. I mean, thinking that what's the most unclean thing that you could be is having all the sins of the world put upon you. I mean. I mean, I mean, to me, that that would that would highly postulate that perhaps he had to cleanse himself completely and shave his hair off, I guess, and then let it grow back, so to speak, after you know time goes on. But that's that's why I'm thinking that uh, people did not recognize. Him. So, yeah. Thanks I'm with thought. you on that. I think you're you're absolutely correct on that. Uh, Ronit, you were going to say something? 
Yeah. Um, so a few thoughts. Um, first of all, going listening to this book, um, it, it kind of like uh, strikes me because when you read the New Testament, you don't get a lot of uh, warm um, family stories or emotions between Yeshua and his family, right? I mean, even when they showed up, it, I don't remember where it was, but when they showed up and someone um, said something about them and he said um, something like, I don't, you know, which brothers or something like he, he didn't even recognize them as um as family do you, i don't know if you remember what i'm talking about but there was this um distance. he said he said like uh who are my my mothers and my brothers and sisters yeah, but those exactly. who but those who do the will of uh my father yes yeah, something like you, you don't you don't get these like cl- like close family ties right um and and here all of a sudden you get like um to sense the mother you know and and what she went through and um her emotions so kind of like it shed light on on different layers that are um completely ignored um in the new testament so it gives like a different dimension to the story um overall the 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 book felt very authentic to me um, authentic in a way of a, an eyewitness account, um, but knowing, you know, being crazed, um, reading um, writings of, of rabbis and great um, rabbis, um, it didn't feel to me like a book that uh, Rabbi Gamliel uh, would write, okay? Um, I feel like it was um, attributed to him, um, maybe because he was so tolerant, and in that um, account that we read in Acts, um, he he was just that that was an amazing account on on his character, um, and you might insinuate that maybe just maybe he was um, deep inside. Um, thinking maybe Yeshua was um, was real, okay, but I I don't I, I, like with my um, knowledge of how Rebbe is right. It just it doesn't feel to me like something that he wrote. But it doesn't matter. The book feels very authentic, um, and um, like as I said, an eyewitness account. Great feedback. We appreciate oh. it. I know when were you talking? You know, I I oh. forgot to I <laughs> I forgot to turn my mic off. I actually was uh responding really quickly. But go ahead, uh Rob. <laughs> yeah, it was blank, so I figured I'd, I'd jump in here. Um yeah, I just wanted to say as I read that also, I, I did not find anything that stood out uh 
Entrary. Um, I know in the chat there was a couple things mentioned, you know, where, uh, you know, she calls uh, Kefa a father. And and the, some of those terms are can be difficult in in translations because we we aren't necessarily um, fully understanding maybe perhaps some idioms or some terms of endearment that may be used that we, we may not recognize. So, so some of those things that we'd have to uh, dig into deeper. But as far as looking at uh, uh, scriptures, I, I, no, nothing that stood out prominently to me. Um, if and if anyone else saw anything, please uh, obviously raise it up. But it seemed to be pretty uh, uh, in line and also giving a lot more details. That was interesting. That's my input. Well, and yeah, on I, that, I just, okay. Um, if I can just interject um, about father. Um, so in Hebrew, it it's it just. Um, it relates, you know, to a, 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 a biological father, but also it's a term of um, um, th that carries honor with it, you know. So, um, like here, you would say the honorable judge or the honorable this. So, it, it, sometimes you would say father, but you, you don't really mean that this is your father, and it's it's how we. Um, in, in the Bible, you will find it, and also in the um, in the Talmud, you know. So I, I don't um, I don't think necessarily she, you know, when she would say father, she meant like this is my father. It was more out of respect, deep, deep respect. Yeah, the Gospel of Bartholomew, which we might read in the series as well, in like the same scene, she refers, uh, Miriam Mar refers to Kifa as father, and he refers to her as mother, kind of some really interesting exchanges. Now, I want to point out a couple things, uh, Ronit, you said that were really good. And uh, so one of them, and, and, and Ronit, when we were going through the, the, the Gospel of Yochanan series, the Hebrew one, as well as Hebrew Revelation, uh, at the end of it, I'm kind of like throwing up my arms. I'm like, I don't even know how to comment on this anymore because what I was finding is if I were to – so I'm actually reading a a Targum. Okay, a Targum just means translation. I'm reading a uh, an English translation from Hebrew, and so I'm trying to dis discuss the English – uh, from this text, and then Ronit's reading it in Hebrew, and she's like, no, that's not what it says. It says this over here. And so one of the, the, the hard things about reading these ancient texts, uh, like this one and others, where they came through multiple different languages, and, you know, it could have been uh, Greek or um, uh, Coptic or, you know, whatever, is that, the you know, someone will read a certain word or sentence and go... Yeah, it's like phone tag, James, exactly. Someone will read a sentence and go, I don't like this sentence. This doesn't connect with scripture. This whole thing is fake. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on here. Like, there is so much to take into consideration. And unfortunately, um, if this was originally uh, written by, um, by Nicodemus, then, then it would have been written in Hebrew. And we don't have that. And so we have to kind of consider all these things as we're going through these translations, recognizing that we do not have a perfect translation. This goes against um, 
so much of Christian thinking, especially King James only, when you talk to anyone who is King James only, they will say that their version is the perfect version, that it was a supernatural transfer of the Holy Spirit into English, and that you don't even need to read the Hebrew or the Greek anymore because you have a King James. And I could prove to any of them that their, their King James is not a perfect translation. And so there are no perfect translations. So I just want everyone to consider that as we go through these books to recognize that we have imperfect copies. Okay, there are going to be errors in them. Uh, and then secondly, um, I did want to point out really quickly that, um, I, that Gamaliel, I'm not really sure how much he is, how much he really wrote this. I know it says, I, Gamaliel. It does say at the end that it is really attributed to Nicodemus. And I find that fascinating because if you take the Gospel of Nicodemus and the Gospel of Gamaliel, they can overlap seamlessly. Like you could take the two books and um, and just like you could take all the scenes and make them into a movie with the two books. Um, it's just it's so seamless. And so to me, this seems very much like this has, um, you know, Nicodemus um, uh, touches his hand, um, you know, his writing style all over this. So um, that's all I have to say on this. Um, does anyone else have any other thoughts that they have, or should we go ahead and close? I appreciate everybody who for coming tonight. Uh, go ahead and speak now forever. Hold your peace. I'll be um, closing shop. I do appreciate everybody coming. I, I appreciate James' amazing uh, reading stylings. <laughs> it was really good. I was really, I was like, I was like, wow, this is really good. And uh, and next time we'll get Rob in there to read. And yeah, come back next week. We'll do this again. Um, we've got some really exciting books to talk about that, you know, most people have never even heard about, never read. And I do appreciate you all coming. With that, we are officially closed. Thank you, Josh, for doing the recording as always. Yeah, I just want to expound a little bit on the points that you just made about the translations. Um, we know that the Catholic Church is the one that canonized and put, for, put all the books together and actually came up with what's the Bible. If they had that much power and influence that they could actually control and put in what was in the New Testament, because basically the Old Testament's written in stone, there was too many copies of that, they couldn't change it, but they could with the New Testament. Well, why not do the same thing with books like the one we just studied tonight? Uh, do we think that they not also had some influence in the translation of those books to put their thinking into them also? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's 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 some uh, there's one there's a few books that um, uh, that I I will read that I think are so good, and then like the last line or something like that, it's just like. It you know it's just like pure Catholic doctrine, and you're like, oh my goodness, this like throw, derails the entire book, and you could totally see how like just a monk is sitting there, a Benedictine monk, he's sitting there and he's throwing in his own notes. I mean, we have these in the Bible. We have them in Mark where it says uh, that comment, and thus he declared all things clean, and it's not in the original, but it's in like the King James and other books. So these things do happen. Uh, we have people that are, um, you know, through the years that are just adding their own biases their own you know doctrines into it and that's all things we have to consider just because we see something in here like the opening line on there you know that it, it it doesn't say trinity but it's like you know father son holy spirit um i wouldn't say that was the red flag but i'm like you know i don't know was that original to the text probably not um but 
you know, it is what it is. So 